0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter
1: at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio.
2: Good Wednesday morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy morning of the debate. Debate number three. Oh. ho, ho. It's, it's almost done, folks. This is the last time we have to talk about debates. It's almost there. You've made it. You can do it. Anyway, we got a big show for you today. Uh, we will do a little bit of, uh, you know, prep for you in, uh, with, the, with the debate coming up tonight. Talk about that. Talk about the special guests that will be at the debate. That's always fun to see who Donald Trump brings out. <laughs> To try to throw Hillary off of her game. Um, Let's just say Donald Trump will have an Obama on his side tonight. No. Yes. I mean, I don't know that his name is Obama. Is his name Obama? It is Obama. Hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Plus, uh, just some of the other – the crazy polls. I mean, Donald Trump now – is pulling into statistical ties in like arizona in nevada uh in utah right these were all locations where the gop just normally just went ahead and he'd never have to worry about it now he's worried about it a little bit we'll get to that but he's actually not spending time in those states in fact he's in wisconsin where he has a very where he's, well, I don't know, like 10 points, I think, down, and uh, I think he's just trying to upset Paul Ryan. We'll get to that fun excitement uh, in just a bit as well, plus um, find out what uh, Kellyanne Conway thinks is going to happen to get Donald Trump a win. Kellyanne is the, uh, the manager of his campaign. We'll get to all of that fun, but first, of course, let's celebrate uh, Evaluate Your Life Day. This is the day you got to celebrate your life. It's your life. You
3: may as well figure out what you're going to do with it. By the way, this is a song for the brokenhearted.
4: Yeah.
3: This is a great song.
2: Do you love Bon Jovi? Bon Jovi, I, I would have come back as Bon Jovi if I believed in reincarnation.
3: His real name can't be John Bon Jovi. Oh, it is. It is? Yeah. No, I don't know. Sounds a little formal. Here we go. Here's the big drop.
2: It's now or never, folks. You're not going to live forever, Mr. Trump. I just want to live while I'm alive. Today's the day. Evaluate Your Life Day. Terry's doing it right now, trying to find another career. Checking his jobs update. I'm on the monster boards right now. Is that what you're doing? I knew that. I knew it. So uh, think about your day. Do you like, I mean, your life. Do you like where it's going? Do you like where it's heading? We'll get to so much about this today. Just stick with us all three hours. Wonderful guests coming up in a bit. We'll also be talking about how corporate America, if they just made a few adjustments, they could increase income inequality and their bottom line. Or would they decrease Inequality. No, they would increase, inequality. They would increase income, there we go. decrease inequality, there we go. <laughs> and increase their income. I'm like, what are we doing with the next yeah. guest? Because okay. think about that. What if you could pay people more and it actually meant you made a lot more as a company?
5: Yeah. That's the part of the story when you hear about income inequality that really isn't talked about is how do we make it so that not
2: everyone loses? Right. Henry Ford... Average income back in the day was about 250 or so. He paid $5 for his workers, and he
3: did that so they could all afford a car. Right. Then it would come back to him. Yeah. Everyone is, everyone wins. Is Donald Trump your first guest? No. Oh. No, no. no. Okay. No. That is increasing
2: income inequality. That is increasing inequality.
3: I just thought he might have something
2: to say on this.
5: By the way, John Bon Jovi? Yeah. His real name is John Francis Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi. B-O-N-G-I-O-V-I, all one word. I knew the bond was made up. So he broke out. I-N-O. So he called himself Bon Jovi. That's
2: cool. Because, you know, people can always nail that one the
5: first time without having to ask. That's
2: right. It's a good name, though. Yeah. It's a very rich name. It is now. Now, let's get to another very rich name, Sadie Nelson with the headline, Sadie, what's going on around the rest of the country?
6: Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump face off tonight in Las Vegas, starting at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. The debate will be moderated by Fox News' Chris Wallace at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. President Obama's half-brother Malik will attend Wednesday evening's presidential debate as a guest of Republican nominee Donald Trump. The New York Post Post reported on Tuesday... I'm excited to be at the debate, Malik confirmed to The Post. Trump can make America great again. Trump himself added, I look very much forward to meeting and being with Malik. He gets it far better than his brother. The 58-year-old Kenyan-born resident of Washington, D.C. told the newspaper he does not believe the various accusations of sexual misconduct leveled against Trump. Donald Trump on Tuesday called for a constitutional amendment instituting congressional term limits. While speaking at a rally in Colorado Springs, Colorado, the Republican nominee took what many perceive as a stab at House Speaker Paul Ryan, who recently said he would stop defending the candidate following a string of accusations of sexual misconduct by making a policy issue out of limiting the amount of time members of Congress can serve. And finally... Yes. This is in uh, close to my hometown in Arizona, where this story comes from. Oh, boy. Um, Firefighters in Arizona shared photos from the rescue of a 26-year-old man who was trapped for four hours in his own chimney.
2: Oh, boy. Yeah. Chimney sweep.
6: Yep. The Tucson Fire Department said in a Facebook post, crews responded to a university area home Sunday morning after a neighbor reported hearing a man shouting for help. Firefighters found the man's feet were touching the floor of his house, but his body was wedged in the fireplace due to its decreased diameter toward the bottom. <laughs> oh. The crews lowered a rope and were able to hoist the soup covered man to safety. Mm. The 26 year old man told firefighters he'd been trapped for about four hours after he accidentally locked his keys inside his home and tried to get back in through the chimney. That's. Here's my here's my uh not the my theory. Yes, he could possibly be Santa Claus.
2: <gasps> Does he have a beard?
6: Not yet, but you know Santa has to has a little bit of time to prepare. He so. could be
2: a chimney sweep.
6: Yeah. Oh man, this is the song I was thinking of. Jack. This is my favorite chimney yep. sweep song. Chim chiminey, chim chiminey.
3: Ah, good stuff.
2: Is that the best song? Is that the best show? Just
3: they're remaking
2: it. Are they really? Yeah.
3: No, it's a sequel. Uh, but I a think musical? Emily Blunt is Mary Poppins. Is isn't that what you? it is? I think so. Oh. Oh, right that'll off. work for me. I-, I
2: saw Mary
5: Poppins. They're doing something, and I went, eh, okay. There's no animated penguins, so. Do we even have oh. chimney
2: sweeps, sweeps anymore? That seems like a profession that just has died down.
6: Away. Maybe yeah. in England. But this man was literally covered head to foot in soot. He was suited out. Very suited out.
2: That's, uh,. It's too bad for him.
6: But, like, what's your first thought, you know? Like don't when you're, go down the chimney, like, never. I got locked out of my house. I definitely should go down no. the chimney to break get a through window. my house.
3: No, you you break a window. Sp- Al- always break a window. You go spend a couple hours at, uh, at Starbucks until somebody else comes home.
6: That's that's the truth. Oh, that's free free
3: Wi-Fi and uh, I'm sure free water, too.
6: Might sure. have to pay for the cup, but free water in the cup. Well, it's yeah. not
3: like you don't have a dollar. Just pay a dollar. Pay some money. That would not get you anything at Starbucks.
2: <laughs> it's a lot easier than getting out of a chimney, though. Thank you, Sadie. Boy, that's that's going to teach you. Be creative, sure. But he got on the roof. That's another thing. He could get on his roof, but he couldn't get in his house. Maybe what he ought to do is leave an upper floor window open. He could. Because if he can get on the roof, he can get in the window. Just saying. Hey, um, okay. Chris Wallace from Fox News. Yes has the most difficult job on TV tonight. He's the first Fox journalist to uh, to
5: moderate a presidential debate. Yeah, they don't, because Fox... They've done primaries. ...has
2: never been considered real journalism by half of the uh, country, I guess. Or at least the debate commission. Yeah. The Democrats, well, so like Hillary, all these people would never go on a Fox show because Democrats thought you know fox isn't fair but we all know i mean they're fair and balanced yeah so wallace not like half
5: the network is yeah i guess not for a candidate right now
2: yeah that's <laughs> true right now the, so chris wallace is mike wallace's son the great 60 mm-hmm. minutes mike wallace and he now gets to herd the two cats and yes. try to get them corralled six topics he's going to go over tonight
5: the topics are debt and entitlement Okay. Immigration, mm. the economy, mm. the Supreme Court, foreign hotspots, right. and fitness to be president.
2: Okay. So when will Hillary's a, uh, alleged drug problem come up?
5: Uh, debt and entitlement, immigration, the economy, all of them.
2: How about her, the, her s- health six, issues? There will be six
5: 15-minute segments.
2: Where do all of the extramarital situations, affairs and stuff come in? Uh, it
5: seems like it all comes down to fitness to be president. Because that's what we've been hearing for the last month, basically. Is Where does the arguments. election
2: rigging, be, when's that brought up?
5: Uh, fitness to be president, it looks like. Mm.
2: That's going to be a big category. Do <laughs> you think he's going
5: to wait till the end? Save no. that one for the I end? I have a feeling he won't
2: wait. What about Trump's new call for congressional term limits? Ooh, that could be, I don't know. He'll get it in there, though. But the, the
5: trick is to, to wedge what you want to say into the question mm-hmm, that has right. nothing to do with that topic.
2: So, like, Chris Wallace it's asks a question, you, you signal like you heard it, and then you just answer whatever you want.
5: Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, about, well, I mean, we had a girl talk to Mike Pence last week about uh, teenage girls and body image, mm-hmm. and he turned that into
2: ISIS. Well, yeah, but So, honestly, I mean, you can do it. But ISIS is ruining a lot of teenage girls' body image. Issued. I mean, they're creating. He turned it into national defense. Especially like in Mosul right now. Give me a break. That's crazy. I wish we could be talking about that. Uh, Here's a few quotes for you. Donald Trump, by the way, honestly, if he's brilliant at anything, he does read the people well as far as what they're angry about. Mm -hmm. So he now is talking about how we need uh, congressional term limits.
1: If I'm elected president, I will push for a constitutional amendment. To impose term limits on all members of Congress. They've been talking about that
7: for years.
2: Throw the bums out. So he's going to, uh, he's going to try to create a constitutional amendment, a change for term limits. Yeah. One of the hardest things you can do yes. is amend the Constitution.
5: Yes. That's why whenever someone talks about it, Republican or Democrat, you just kind of, okay, whatever.
2: But Good in luck. in order to do that, he would actually need to be elected.
5: That, that's the first step.
2: That's yes. the first step. And he's now he's been talking a lot about how there's really no way he could be elected because this whole thing is rigged. Mm. And so now the rigging of the election's coming up. So Obama had to step in to kind of say, hey, you can trust the voting system.
4: Every expert, regardless of political party, regardless of ideology, conservative or liberal, who has ever examined these issues in a serious way, will tell you that instances of significant voter fraud are not to be found, that keep in mind elections are run by state and local officials, which means that there are places like Florida, for example, where you've got a Republican governor who's a Republican appointees are going to be running and monitoring a whole bunch of these election sites.
2: Hmm. Interesting point because – now, what's weird because Obama now is responding to Donald. So, again, Donald is leading the discussion. He's done that the entire time. Yes. Do you remember the very beginning of this thing was about a wall? Uh, Yeah. And then everyone had to respond to the wall. Speaking of walls.
8: Yeah.
5: 50 volunteers, 35 taco trucks parked all across the city of Las Vegas (laughs) in protest, making a virtual taco wall. Oh, that sounds good. In front of Trump's – Hotel and Pages. Great oh, wall of
3: tacos. I could
2: spend hours trying prov- to overcome that wall.
5: Provided by local culinary workers, Union 226 in Las Vegas.
2: The taco trucks are on the move, you guys. But
5: I, I read yesterday about is Trump actually rigging the election himself? Yes. By simply pushing this narrative that has no basis to it.
2: But, But then, so he is trying to rig it. And then Obama, the president, the most powerful person in the world with the biggest, you know, stick uh, to pound on him. He had this to say about what Trump ought to do.
4: There is no serious person out there who would suggest somehow that you could even rig America's elections in part because they're so decentralized and the numbers of votes involved. There's no evidence that that has happened in the past or that there are instances in which that will happen this time. I'd advise Mr. Trump to stop whining and go try to make his case to get votes.
3: But didn't they bring up the point that – was it back in the 70s that there were dead people that were voting? Oh, yeah. there's still dead people voting, according to Mr. Giuliani. They're all Democrats. Right, everyone. But
2: it's – I mean, there, I think there are cases of voter fraud. But there are – Like 50 in – yeah. The state of New York or whatever. To, to tip a presidential Eight election, you'd need thousands. Yeah. Unless you're in Florida.
5: And then the problem, like, I, I was listening to uh, uh, one of us, What was it? It was the uh, lieutenant governor of the state of Utah, mm-hmm. right? He was talking about how it works in the state of Utah where each county's individual, they, they work separately, they all monitor their own elections, and then the results are overseen by the state. So you would have to rig every single county yeah. to make something happen.
2: It's not happening.
5: Yeah, and so on a national scale, there are three thousand counties. You'd have to somehow get into the influential counties and have this really organized effort to. I it's, mean, it's just too much to happen. It's to Donald's
2: it. way to just create more fear and yeah. maybe keep people from the polls and intimidate. So he's also part of this as he's saying. So be really strong at the polls. If you think somebody's doing something wrong, you watch them, which is care. It's scaring some communities. And that are afraid to vote anyway. I think if you go to his website, you can sign up
1: oh, to do to something that watcher.
2: is illegal.
5: You're not allowed
2: to go and just stand there.
1: So he's
3: intimidating. the. He would say he's not, but he's intimidating the vote. Right. <laughs> he's going down fighting is what he's doing. Yes. If you knew you were going to go down, he, you're going to bring out every but everything in the book. According to Kellyanne Conway...
2: His manager, I don't think he knows he's going down. Yeah.
0: We're going to win this because people love a comeback story. And the one thing Donald Trump has that she simply does not is the mantle of change and disruptor and, and Washington outsider, successful businessman versus typical politician. And you know what else he's going to do, Anderson? What? He'll continue to campaign. We get criticized a lot. He's doing rallies. Will those people vote? Will the people who stood in the rain for four hours to see him at a rally? Sometimes today in Colorado, mm-hmm. you could, they were overflow. You know they're going to vote. We shall see- and I think they're not all counted in the polls.
5: Right.
2: Um, and that very well may be true. Rally attendance doesn't necessarily mean voter turnout. You, you actually, a lot of candidates actually work on turning out the vote. Yeah. Not just holding a really great rally. One more that we've got to talk about is Steve Schmidt, who uh, was John McCain's campaign manager. And uh, so he's been there. He's lost one of these before. Yes. He had to coach. Uh, what's her name? Who's Sarah Palin? Palin. And if you've seen the movie, he had a really hard time coaching her to stay on task. Um, But John McCain's chief strategist, Steve Schmidt, Schmidt says it's 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 pretty much over.
7: Under a relentless
2: assault on her character and on her dignity and her maintenance of that dignity
7: is part of the task And I think prepares and serves her well when the inevitable happens, which is a very substantial landslide victory on November 8th. I want to be clear about something. This race is over.
9: Now, from a news perspective,
0: I understand we can't say this, but I'm a political analyst and I can look at the numbers and I can look at the trajectory. We're looking at numbers in Utah. We're looking at numbers in Alaska, in Georgia, and North Carolina, across the country, where red states are turning blue, and it will have dramatic
2: implications for the Republican Party. So,
5: mm. the results of a Fox crazy. News poll yesterday, Utah is listed as toss-up.
2: I know that's crazy. Like, what? Utah has never been a toss-up. Well, that's what the pundits are saying. You get to decide, right? It's your vote. Uh, make sure you're making it. This is your decision. And watch the debate tonight, Chris Wallace and I think uh, because it's in Vegas, Siegfried and Roy will be coming in of course, that's what Jeff saw anyway Siegfried and Roy and then maybe David Copperfield's going to make something disappear or someone
3: it's going to be a big night Hillary's going to come with the cast of Abba <laughs> she'll be they'll sing her in is that how it's going to work that'll be great she, she's going to sing
2: the winner takes it all <laughs> the winner oh boy that'll be great what a great visual. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll be speaking about how corporate America can curb income inequality and make more money for everybody. Interesting insight. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Employees and companies are supposed to work hand in hand, right, to increase productivity in the workplace, increase company earnings, and in bettering the American economy, just as parents and children both give and take uh, from each other, employees and companies have a special symbiotic relationship as well. Well, what happens when the employees or the company only acts in their own self-interest? Who is the ultimate loser? Here to speak more about this is Dr. Wallace J. Hopp, a distinguished university professor at the Ross School of Business located at the University of Michigan. And uh, today he's here to talk to us about an article he wrote called, uh, or titled How Corporate America Can Curb Income Inequality and Make More Money Too. Dr. Hopp, thank you so much for being with us today.
10: Right. Thanks for having me.
2: This is an interesting article. I was uh, I was actually blown away with with how you were able to teach this because you start with a metaphor that I would love you to just teach us the metaphor of the scorpion and the frog and maybe just compare it like you did in your article to companies and their employees. Okay,
10: sure. Well, uh, the story that I started the article with is um – uh, called The Scorpion and Frog Parable, and the, the, I first saw it in a movie by Orson Wells called Mr. Arcaden. Huh. Anyway, this, it, it turns out that it's much, much older than that. It goes back centuries, but um, the version that, that I told was goes as follows. Um, a scorpion approaches a frog on a riverbank and says, will you give me a ride across the river? And the frog says, are you kidding? You'll sting me. Um, and the scorpion says, no, I won't, because if I do that, we'll both drown. And the frog says, well, okay, that's reasonable. And so uh, the scorpion hops on the frog's back, and they start out across the river. Halfway across, the scorpion stings the frog, and they both start to sink. And the frog says, why did you do that? And the scorpion says, I can't help it. It's my nature. Mm. So that's the parable. Now, the connection to um, what's going on in corporate America and the whole income inequality issue is that the policies that are leading to all of the gains from growth and productivity and the opening of international markets are going to the upper echelons of the, um, the, the corporate workforce. And as a result, we're basically undermining the very economy, the frog, as it were, that business relies on. And so what my argument is, is that executives are actually stinging the, um, their very lifeblood through these policies, mm. And so the argument that I make is that if, if we could reverse some of those and treat the workforce as an investment rather than as an expense, that the companies could be more profitable, more successful, and the workforce could also be um, you know, better paid and more successful. And it's
2: because the nature of the company, many think, is just to make money for the shareholder.
10: And that's, that's a relatively recent viewpoint is that a um, of business? the role of a corporation. Yeah, it's So it's since about the 1980s, which is precisely when the divergence between productivity and blue-collar worker pay started. Hmm. From 1945 to about 1975, 1980, productivity and worker pay rose in lockstep. But ever since, productivity has continued to go up and wages have stagnated. And that's precisely the point at which the uh, shareholder value view of the firm became um, popular. That's, prior to that, that wasn't the case. The, no, yep. What they used to have was more of a statesman view of the role of, of corporations, that they, they viewed their overall stakeholders, their customers, their employees, the communities yeah. that they worked in, as also having a, a stake in the, the corporation. And, and therefore, you know, the leaders were responsible to all the stakeholders as opposed to only the shareholders. Yeah, kind of a stakeholder versus shareholder, because yeah,
2: the entire exactly. community had a stake in every company, in every plant even if i didn't own the stock interesting is i mean because we now hear about raising or uh, raising minimum wage we hear about well, we'll hear about it i'm sure in the debates tonight about income inequality and many think you know the rich uh i mean with the wall street talk and how wall street's getting richer and the poor are getting poorer and the middle class is disappearing but what you're arguing as a professor is you're you're saying No, if we actually invest back in our people with a higher income, it will actually, in the end, make us more profitable. But how? But how?
10: Okay, well... There's a couple of mechanisms by which that works. The first one is that that unlike machines or you know uh, 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 facilities, workers are not a fixed uh, resource. That is, the 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 uh, value that they produce depends on a lot of things: their motivation, their engagement, their training level, the systems that support them, all of that. And so, what I see in my own research, when I work with companies, my, my uh, focus is on, on developing high-performance production systems. Hmm. As I see a lot of disengaged, discouraged workers, high turnover rates, uh, and consequently, you know, a, a loss of productivity and quality in the work systems. But I see some firms that have gone another way. You know, for instance, take Shake Shack. This is a fast food company that pays their workers significantly above minimum wage in an industry where minimum wage is the norm. Mm -hmm. And what they get out of it is workers who stay longer. So the, the turnover the rate lower. is, is yeah. lower, and, and that's costly. Turnover is very costly. And they see you know, better engagement in terms of customer service. And so they, what they lose in higher wages, they get back in the savings in terms of the training and recruitment for new employees and in the, um, you know, the, the business that they generate hmm. by you know, producing better customer service. That is – I mean, and you, you mentioned others, uh, Costco, Costco. Costco does a similar. So if you compare Costco with Walmart, Costco pays substantially higher wages. Now they hire fewer people per dollar of sales. Mm -hmm. And so what they have done is they've basically set up a system with the uh, support structure that makes their workers more uh, productive. And that's that's how they can afford to yeah. pay them such good uh, wages and benefits. But then, what they do is it goes beyond just money. You can't just throw money at employees and say, well, they'll be they'll be more productive. It, they also um, design the the jobs that the employees do to make them more rewarding and more hmm. motivating. And that is, you know, for instance, at Costco, the the employees in the store have greater contact with customers. And so they, they feel more rewarded. I mean, what's rewarding in work is when you make a positive difference for another person. Interesting. And so the, yeah. the extent to which, you know, Costco able to get their employees to be engaged in rewarding work and pay them higher benefits and 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 uh, pay so that they stay around long enough to get trained and good at doing the kinds of things that they want to do, leads to a system that really works for them. And if you look at just forget about you know all these other things we've talked about and just go look at shareholders, mm-hmm. you're better off being a shareholder of Costco than Walmart. Wow, the, the, Costco has outperformed Walmart in the stock market for years. And it and the engagement of those
2: employees is completely different. I mean, I have friends that work at Costco and I have friends that work at Walmart and my Costco friends are so excited. And I mean, and they they were actually people that were in other professions and st- still saw going to Costco as a great opportunity. It wasn't a fallback job. Plus, engagement, I know, is a a number that a lot of people are reading today. I think it was Pew or somebody, uh, Gallup or somebody reported about uh, engagement being down. Only 70 percent of employees – no, 30 percent of employees feel engaged in their job.
10: Yeah. Yeah. Which, which to me, I look at that, you know, as an industrial engineer, as a business professor, and I go, there's a tremendous opportunity right. there. That is an underutilized resource. If you have a disengaged workforce, then you are leaving money on the table.
2: So true. So productivity goes up, engagement goes up. Um, In fact, let's take a break, come back. And this this isn't a new idea, right? You mentioned Henry Ford started this many, many moons ago. Um, But eventually, people that are making more money will spend more money. We'll continue the discussion with Professor Wally Hopp from the University of Michigan. Great uh, insight we're learning about uh, you pay and you get paid back. As a company. Stick with us. Interesting insights right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We hear a lot in this election about income inequality, the middle class that's shrinking. Many are, you know, saying that uh, kind of parts of the Rust Belt, as factories have been closing, as uh, new laws around environmental, you know, procedures and practices are changing, companies are closing, things are shutting down, and wages are stagnating. So, are companies really just supposed to increase someone's wage in an effort to increase their bottom line? Will it come back to benefit them? Well, our guest, uh, Dr. Wallace J. Hopp, is joining us. He's a distinguished university professor at the Ross School of Business at uh, the University of Michigan. He's been studying manufacturing and service sectors for over 30 years and has uh, has come up with a really, I think, powerful argument for why we might want to seriously consider Raising income and wages um, simply to just improve society as a whole, Dr. Hop, thank you again for being with us thank you matt when you When you think about this um, in the end, does it matter if I increase your salary? What if I just give you lots of parties? What if I give you free drinks at the office and we put a ping pong table in there so you can go yep. take breaks. Does that does does uh, does, that does that help? And uh, or would it be better that I just put more money in your pocket?
10: You know, I, I think that it's hard to tell because most of the companies that have used the ping pong free food uh, you know party in yeah. the office kind of strategy, uh, the Googles and Facebooks of the world have those kinds of fringe benefits. Also, pay significantly above market. They do both, then, huh? They do. Oh, yeah. Google pays 18 percent above market. Facebook pays 25 percent above market. Holy cow. So they're, they're going in whole hog. I mean, they're basically saying we are going to get the best possible workers that we can, and we're going to entice them both with um, a, you know, excellent wages and an outstanding working environment. Huh. And most of the research we've done here at the Ross School um, says that that the working environment is at is, is at least as important as um, the the wages. Okay, you know, so we don't see many people saying we're going to pay below market wages but have a really great working environment. Right. Other than say nonprofits, but nonprofits that is the market wage. Mm-hmm. Is
2: um, yeah, so they're they're they are paying the market. The market's just lower than traditional. Right, exactly,
10: that's exactly right.
2: Is I guess um, one benefit, though, of paying employees more is kind of the Henry Ford model that they would then be able to buy more product.
10: Yeah, although that story is mistold a little bit. It's 100 years old, right? And we hear that, well, Ford paid the the workers um, in order to enable them to afford to buy his cars. Now, this is a story that's personally, you know, relevant to me. My grandfather came to Michigan to work for Henry for $5 a day wages, and I live in Michigan still. I know. Now look at you. And there you go. Um, then thank heaven that he got those $5 a day wages and my family was able to get educated, which is another reason for, you know, the, the yeah, evils of income inequality is that when you get, you know, people not having access to education, then in a dynamic economy like we have, you know, it's, it's very hard to move up and, and, you know, adjust with the changing uh, economy. But back to Henry Ford, the story was really that he instituted the famous moving assembly line back in 1913, uh, and um, the work was just boring as all get out, right? Because you're basically putting one part in, one part in, and it was tedious, and he had a lot of problems with absenteeism and turnover, And so uh, his, uh, you know, uh, confidants talked him into uh, a high-wage policy as a mechanism for keeping uh, the employees in place and keeping them motivated. Hmm. And so he, you know, and he increased the wages from like two forty an hour uh, or two forty a day to five dollars a day. So it was a huge increase. So first of all, he got really good people like my grandfather to come work for him, and secondly, they stayed, you know, in spite of the tedious work. So what Ford was doing was sort of half the equation that I said that Facebook and, and Google are pol- following is he paid uh, what we, uh, the economists call efficiency wages, that is wages that will get you the best people and keep them. Hmm. But um, but the working environment was still pretty poor. Horrible, yeah. Now, if you look at the, the numbers, the, the pay that he gave to the workers, you know, could not be justified by the the sales that he would make in automobiles to his workforce right okay However, there was a very significant impact on the city of Detroit because they bought a lot more pizzas and, you know, shoes and, uh, you know, everything else. And so all of Detroit um, basically had more money in its its local economy. And because the other employers now were in competition with Ford, their wages went up as well. Hmm. And so what happened was that there was a whole economic stimulus that happened to the economy thanks to Ford's wage policy. Interesting. And so, it's part of my argument for You know, uh, getting away from these policies that foster such extreme um, income inequality is that the more money that's in the pockets of people who spend it most quickly, the working class, people who are buying necessities and so forth are going to spend their money quickly and they're going to produce economic activity that's going to produce, you know, jobs and opportunities for everyone. Yeah, it's, it's sort of a virtuous cycle once it gets started. And we saw what happened in Ford's era. And he described it as the greatest cost-saving innovation that he ever found was paying high wages.
2: That's smart.
10: So it was great for Ford. Right. It was also great for Detroit and the U.S. economy.
2: Well, we saw that recently here in Utah. There was a big hullabaloo because Facebook wanted to move a plant somewhere, and we were in the running for it, but it was all underground. Nobody heard anything really about it. But I guess cities were giving tax breaks, you know, to Facebook uh, allegedly to to bring them in, but then that makes all of the citizens so mad because should they be getting tax breaks? Yeah. But then I look at it and I think, but if Facebook's paying twenty five percent higher wages, yeah, because that's going to bring more money well, back into the city as well. So maybe we don't need to be so mad at companies for getting some of those benefits to come to if if they're paying their
10: people well. I think so, and maybe that's one way to to look at it. Is there have been some funny stories oh, about yeah. states, you know, fighting for a company that just moves back and forth across the state border <laughs> right. to get a, an additional tax break? Yeah. Uh, but if you tied it to, you know, the the wages that that uh, the company pays. You know, and the jobs that they produce, you you could make an economic argument oh, for yeah. tax breaks to attract industry.
2: But there's a, there's a game that's going on here, right? Where employees get mad at the CEO that gets these huge uh, bonuses for stock buyback stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, so and that, so one side of it is the, is kind of the shareholder mentality where we've invested the money, so we get the first payout. Um, and the most payout. But there's another side of your, your argument of the pay for productivity. We should be paying people for product productivity. But the other side of it is that you've got to be productive.
10: Well, that's right, and so you mentioned stock buybacks. Yeah. The problem with that is that's sort of an abuse of the metrics that they use to pay executives.
2: Explain they, that. Explain. The, explain stock buybacks for somebody okay. that so, wouldn't.
10: So basically, an open market stock buyback is simply a situation where a firm uses its cash reserves to buy its own stock. You know, and so they basically take it out of the market. Shrinking that, ownership. Exactly. So two, two effects happen. One is you've just made your stock more scarce, and that's going to tend to drive up the price. And two, when um, analysts calculate earnings per share, since there are fewer shares now out on the market, your earnings per share just went up. Mm-hmm. And so it makes your company look more attractive, and hence the stock price goes up. And, isn't, However, it, and, and
2: the CEO is, and the leaders are the people that end up owning a lot of the stock exactly. that they can sell back.
10: They own the stock or they have bonuses that are based on stock prices. Right. And so yeah. that's where I say it's an abuse of the metrics because so they're trying to measure the productivity of the senior managers by looking at stock price but when they allow this which by the way stock buybacks were illegal prior to 1982 they were considered manipulation really? yeah. stock price and the sec passed a rule saying no that you know now they're they're legal oh, and boy. so uh in that 2015 companies spent more than 500 billion dollars buying back their own stock wow and The point i'm making is there is no productivity increase there no. right Is the company doesn't produce any more value they don't serve customers any better they haven't their markets you know, aren't growing their cost right. structure they're nothing nothing has improved so it, it, it's it's uh, uh, you know Um, A shell game that they're playing so my argument is so here's the place where i go even further than just saying that corporate america should be investing in their workforces i think corporate america should be lobbying for sensible regulations because an individual company looks at stock buybacks and says, well, everybody else is doing them. Mm-hmm. I'm at a disadvantage if I don't. Yeah, right? My yeah. stock is going to look artificially low or my you know, uh, senior executives are going to feel shortchanged because they didn't get the boost in their benefits and so forth. So I do them, too. But if companies would get together and lobby their congressmen to say, let's go back to an era in which stock buybacks are considered manipulation and we don't do them. Now it's a level playing field for all, mm. and we can compete. And I, and I want companies to compete, um, and but they'll compete by investing in productivity, investing right. in their workforce, and doing things that really produce value for customers.
2: So they'd invest that same money in R&D, in their customers, in in research – which would actually grow the economy instead of just moving the paper in the economy. Precisely,
10: and and you know, and a byproduct of that is, if you look sensibly at your uh, options for investments, I find that many companies would be well served by investing in their workforces. Mm. That is, let's pay more in terms of wages, benefits, and training for our workers, and so then the the byproduct is that we get less income inequality. You know, yeah, we're, we're paying the, and, and what the research shows that the drag on the economy is created most when the bottom of the, you know, sort of economic distribution starts to fall behind the rest. Mm. When that happens, you, you know, the, the uh, macro economists who study, you know, economies all around the world, you see that, that you have slow growth. What we see in the United States, now that we have reached really extreme levels of income inequality, is that our recovery from recessions is much, much slower. Yeah. You see what happened after 2007. We just like crawled out of that recession. Mm-hmm. And the reason is that you've got you know, a lot of people who just are uh, under the burden of debt. They just can't spend. And we're an economy that depends on consumer mm-hmm. spending to get us out of recessions. And we've set our our income distribution up such that it's basically, um, you know, blocking the very consumers that we need to spend from doing yeah. that.
2: In fact, it's, it seems to have created the energy behind this incredible political, you know, Yep. Ma, you know bog that we're just stuck in um, yeah. so and so how do we break this wally how do you break the uh how do you break the shareholder versus stakeholder mentality the pay for productivity how do you do it and what so what could my listeners do today whether they're in an employ,
10: whether they're an employee or a leader What do we do? They're a leader. There are lots of good examples. We hold a positive business conference here at the Ross School of Business every year, and we bring in, you know, just firm after firm after firm who gets it, right, who Mm. is investing in their workforce. They're paying, you know, good wages and, and good benefits and producing good work environments, and they're profitable, and so, so there's just there's a, a string of those. I mentioned, um, you know, Shake Shack and Costco, but um, you know, Trader Joe's, yeah. REI are other examples. An interesting example that I find, you know, is this little tiny company called Managed by Q. And it's, a, it's basically a janitorial, on-demand janitorial services company. You call yeah. up and they'll come out and clean your thing. But they pay, they start their, their janitors uh, or their employees out at twelve fifty an hour, which is wow. way above yeah. you know, what they start. And they go up rapidly from there. Plus, they get health care and 401k plan benefits. What? Now, how do they make that play? So right. Right? That would look insane. Why yeah. would you pay a janitor this much? It's way over the market. The the reason is they're using those janitors um, to do more than just clean. So, because what they're doing is they get in and they clean the business. But be, because they have people who stay mm. and learn, you know, the the business, they sell other services. So they they now are are, are providing things like security and supplies. Interesting.
2: And and they're in the I building. They know what these people need.
10: Exactly. They're in there. They, they become salespeople
2: almost. That's yep. powerful. So
10: what they're doing is, is that, yes, their, their cost structure is high, but their top line, the revenue growth, is also high. And so if you look at yeah. it, that is a company that starts out sort of slower growth than the real low-wage competitors you know, in that janitorial services industry. But after a few years, because their growth is so much more rapid, and plus they save the you know, the recruiting and training and so forth, because of all the turnover, they actually wind up being more profitable. Oh, man. So there are lots of stories like that. So what we're trying to do at the Ross School is to, you know, provide a platform for people to tell those stories and and hopefully inspire other business leaders to follow that example, because it's good business. We're not not telling people that this is just altruism. Right, right. It's good for the economy. It's good for society, but it's also good for business.
2: And yeah. And and in I guess in the end is we we've got to we've got to be educated in that. We've got to believe that. I'm a business owner and it's scary, you know. Instead you want to conserve in these times instead of opening up your wallet and paying more. But so I guess the one thing they can do is go to your the the Ross School website and be looking for just more insight, more information from the University of Michigan. We,
10: we do. We have a, a Center for Positive Organizations mm. site here, which is a repository for all kinds of, of stories and um, uh, research into this uh, perspective on business. Good stuff. So, so th- and there's lots. It's not just us doing research yeah. in it. I mean, we're compiling research by people all over the world um, because there is a bit of a movement out there, and mm-hmm. we describe it as the new world of work. We're I trying to that. inspire a revolution in which work is – a, a more positive part of people's lives. And and it has to start with business because that's where work happens. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. And people, right? This is about people. It's all about people.
2: Well, Wally, we appreciate you. We're, we're going to have to have you back. Keep writing and we'll keep watching for your, your newest insights. I'd love to, to just keep teaching us.
10: I will definitely do that. Thanks so much you for bet. having me, Professor Wallace
2: J. Hop, a distinguished university professor at the Ross School of Business, located at the University of Michigan. Go check out uh, the Center for Positive Organizations. Uh, just Google that, and uh, you'll get you'll get the information you need. Wally Hop, what a cool professor! Isn't it true? If we just take care of each other, we 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 go farther. We make more. We at least also can feel good about what we're doing every day. Sometimes just being connected with each other makes it a better job, makes it a better day for all of us. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up Hour number one. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. And it's right there, folks, in business as well. We'll be back.
5: I'm ready to go in, Coach.
1: Just give me a chance.
3: Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. (laughs) Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching
1: corner.
3: Hey, welcome
2: back, friends. You know, um, people. Do you believe in people? And do you believe that investing in people brings more uh, opportunity, more profitability, better ideas? Because when you're running a business, it really comes down to how you see the people you're working with. And uh, you can see why some companies have gotten into this shareholder mentality. The problem with shareholder is if I'm working for a company where I'm not a shareholder, meaning I don't own a share in the company, I don't have my own money in the game, which most companies, probably you don't own stock in your own uh, companies. It's expensive, right? Or if you do, it's so minimal. It's like non-existent. Then it might be more advantageous to take the stakeholder approach. I can work for my stake because I see what the company does to my family my my you know my area that I live in, my city, my community. I can see how it pays back and just takes care of you know the values that I believe in so really, spend some time in your own life in your own business, and figure out what motivates you. Are you in the company simply because you have a share, a, a financial share in it, or are you in it for the stakeholders? If you're the manager, it's a great way to look at it. But if you're an employee, what's driving your motivation? And make sure you're digging into your motivation because someday you could be the leader. And it's, it seems like if we, if we would just focus more on the people, um, not even the word equality or inequality, just the people and what are the needs of your people – I think if you looked him in the eye enough, you'd probably come to the exact same conclusion that uh, Dr. Hopp was just teaching us about. Interesting stuff. We'll take a break. Come back. Continue the discussion. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, lead a better life. We'll be back.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter
1: at Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show at
1: 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends.
2: Hour number two of the program. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Holding your hand through life. Walking you through the vicissitudes of life. Wow. Good word use. There's Thank a t-shirt. You. Thank you. I read it in my scripture study today. Vicissitude. We got it. <laughs> What's a vicissitude? Hey, today we will be talking about how uncomfortable we are as human beings to, be, to make choices for others. Like if I'm a manager, I need to get more comfortable making decisions. And sometimes we don't make decisions that we need to make. So we delegate decision-making. And then we delegate it to people that don't have the information we have, that don't have the decision-making skills we have. Yeah. They shouldn't be making the decision. We're afraid. (laughs) And so we've got to figure out why we are all so uncomfortable making decisions for others. And we've
3: got a true blue expert that's going to walk us through it. Hmm. I can't even decide what I want when I go to a restaurant. Uh, I can't even make that decision. There's too many choices? Yeah. Does your wife help? No, I'm a, I'm a big boy. I just, <laughs> you know. I, but I, would, I personally, I, I
2: don't like making decisions either. But I've learned you can't think too long about it
3: or it gets worse. So I just pull the trigger and then I regret it for days. So I'm actually from a family full of people that cannot... Make decisions because we're all about being happy and making sure that nobody's offended or unhappy. You just want to make sure that everybody gets what they want, and it's not always going to be that way. It's
2: not. So we've got to deal with why we are so uncomfortable with making decisions, really for ourselves or for others. And there's a lot of reasons you may not want to be, right? Like, I don't want to be that guy that tells other people how to do things. But if you're the manager and you're looking good – you know, you gotta sometimes make the decisions. Pull the trigger. By the way, right when we were saying that, our boss walked by in a suit.
5: In a suit. This is a guy that shows up in what? Most of the days it's
2: usually like a,
3: a just a sweaty t shirt and some cutoff jeans. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. Some- Daisy Dukes. an old bowling shirt, yeah, with not you know with somebody else's name on it.
2: Don Shaline, what a stud! He looks great today. He's all, he cleans up nice. So um, we will be talking about decision making also today. It's Evaluate Your Life Day. Oh. <laughs> Don't be sad, Jeff.
8: <laughs>
2: Apparently, this is somebody that doesn't like where their life is going. The time comes in every life when we have to take an accounting, a reckoning of the things we've done, the progress we've made or not made, the path we're on. Today's that day. Evaluate Your Life Day is a great opportunity to figure out where you are on your path, on your journey through life. Also, by the way, today we uh, are celebrating the final debate, which will take place tonight. Yes, Chris Wallace we Will be stepping into the uh,
3: into the forum. What do we call it? The octagon. Into the octagon. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be a bloodbath. Is this taking place at the famous Circus Circus Hotel? No, it's no, but it yeah. will be a circus circus. Is it?
2: It's got to be hard for Donald. I guess he lands in Vegas on Trump Airlines, then he goes to Trump Hotel. It has a Trump steak. Yes. Some Trump water. Very trumpy day for him. Throws back a Trump vodka probably mm-hmm. and then he goes to the which location? I'm he not, goes to some hotel. Oh, it's at UNLV. Oh, perfect. UNLV good. is hosting that. So it's, I was so thinking, it's at the university. Good. I was trying to think where was this going to be at? Yeah, UNLV is going to host
3: yeah. it. Then that's actually nice. He's probably got he's he's got a nice place there at Trump Hotel. I'm telling you his guests are going to be Chris Angel and Carrot Top oh, is going to be, be the opener. Can you imagine Carrot Top no, and the, Donald
5: Trump in the same room? The mother of one of the uh, guys that died in the Benghazi situation. Oh, that's right. She'll yeah. be there. She'll be there. And uh, Obama's stepbrother, Malik. And there's is that somebody. His name? Yeah, there's somebody else. Clinton will have a former HP CEO, Meg Whitman, who was a Republican uh-huh. donor. Now she's supporting Hillary Clinton, along with some local what? people in Vegas that I think were uh, shortchanged by Trump.
2: Are they, are they there? to Are they,
5: like, intimidators? I don't know. I guess. I, I don't know why someone that you uh, – It's so they can point to them and hopefully the camera will, like, shift and go, here's that person. You yeah. know what I mean? I, I think what they're looking for – but they didn't do that in the last debate.
3: Well, they did it in the first debate and it mm-hmm. didn't work. They didn't pan over to the guy with the camera and Trump just rolled it off his shoulder. He's like, well, he probably did a bad job. Do you know. Yeah. Uh,
2: do you know if you want to – I was trying to think who would be – who would intimidate Trump. There's only one person I could think of. It's his hairstylist. So, what if Hillary paid big money to Donald's hairstylist to be sitting there with Hillary's camp? Donald would come unnutted. I mean, not like he won't come unnutted anyway. Yeah. So, we'll get to all of that fun stuff. Uh, plus, uh, we're going to talk about how uh, Legos, Legos may be tearing a family apart. Sometimes they're hard
5: to get apart. You get yeah. two of the flat pieces together and you got to try to no, pry them think, apart. I don't know if that's Is that what it. they mean? I
2: don't think that's it.
3: No. They are the means of tribulation in the home uh-huh. when you step on them at 2 in the morning. No,
2: I don't think that's what it No, it's tearing a family apart. Cause yeah, you have to get that shuffle down. You can't lift your feet up in the dark. You don't mess with people's Legos. <laughs> we'll get to that story. Also, we will be doing a review of another uh, Halloween movie, a scary movie. We're doing a list of uh, – just put together a list of the top 12 scariest – Halloween movies.
3: Well, not scariest, well, uh, but... but this one's more funny than scary. Oh, yeah. This is
2: this – is, in fact, I almost watched it last night. But? But I only have about 40 minutes. So I, I've got to choose in that 40 minutes. Do I go watch a movie or do I talk to my children?
3: Watch it over two nights. It can't be more than an hour and a half. I might watch it on my trip. Mm. That's what I might do because I'm leaving
2: on a jet plane. Don't know when I'll be back again.
3: We do okay. next Monday.
2: Oh, that's right. Uh, all this fun ahead. But first, let's get to Sadie Nelson. find out what's going on in the headlines. Sadie, what's up?
6: People magazine on Tuesday published a story with six separate witness accounts verifying reporter Natasha Stoyanov's story in which she accused Donald Trump of forcing, forcing himself on her in 2005. Since nearly a dozen women have come forward to accuse Trump of inappropriate sexual conduct, the Republican candidate has denied these accusations. No one ever said this election is going to make sense. The latest poll out of Texas shows Donald Trump leading by just three points on Hillary Clinton. In other words, the Democratic nominee is within the margin of error of the Republican nominee in Texas. The survey released Tuesday by the University of Houston's Hobby School of Public Affairs put Trump at 41 percent over Clinton's 38 percent with a margin of error of plus or minus 3 percent. Police and school officials said four people were wounded, one critically, and a shooting that erupted at a San Francisco high school parking lot after school had been let out for the day. One victim, a teenage girl, was critically wounded after the shooting near June Jordan School for Equity around 3.20 p.m. local time, while two teenage boys suffered non-life-threatening injuries, police said. The San Francisco Unified School District said in a statement that a fourth person was also wounded, but could not provide any further information on the victim. School officials said one of the victims was specifically targeted. The three others were bystanders. Police said four male suspects were seen fleeing the scene shortly after the shooting. And finally... Yes... Um in London, um there was a man who recorded a video when he spotted something unusual floating in the River Thames. Mm. A man casually floating Thames. on the water.
2: Thames. Thames. Thames, Thames. Thames. Thames.
6: Thames River. Thank Thames. you. A man Thames casually British. floating on the water in a giant inflatable ball. <laughs> Adnan Abid posted a video Monday morning to a popular London Facebook group showing his view from the Waterloo Bridge as a man in a giant inflatable ball floats down the river. The floating man, who who identity and purpose for floating are unknown, drew the attention of dozens of spectators lining the guardrails next to the river.
2: (laughs) He's just floating in a ball. So
6: no one really knows why he was there or what his purpose was, but he just thought it would be a great day to take a float down the river. How
2: ball must float. Can a guy not float down a river without it making national news?
6: No. Not anymore.
2: Not anymore. Well, I've been on the Waterloo Bridge.
6: Have you really? I have. Excellent. Excellent.
2: I think my wife got hit by a pigeon Mm. in Trafalgar Square.
6: It's never near there. Never. I was going to
2: say she should have ducked, but it was a pigeon. It was a pigeon. (laughs) Sorry. It was ugly. Thanks, Sadie. What song is this? Modest Mouse? Float On. Float On. Great song. Is this the music he was listening to? Just floating so. down the
6: river.
5: It's a great song. Don't bite your lip. I like this. You always bite your lip and try to jam the music. It just seems mm. kind of awkward.
3: Mm.
5: He's doing it again.
3: And it's a modest mouse. Yeah. It's a modest
2: mouse. Float on. Hey, um... Okay. Let's shoot straight. Uh-oh. Legos. Okay, so everything is not so awesome for this Lego family. Not true. (laughs) A Florida man's decision to throw out his 19-year-old son's Lego collection last night triggered a domestic brawl that ended with both combatants behind bars. Police report. Responding to an 11 p.m. domestic violence call, cops encountered... Nicholas Melise Sr. and his son, Nicholas Jr. The elder Melise, 46, had been arguing with his son. Cops noted over Mr. Melise Sr. throwing out the Jr.'s Legos. The dispute uh, both Melises acknowledged turned physical and included the exchange of shoves and punches. A Lego punch. Everything is not awesome. Um... The men each suffered scratches during the fight. Younger Malise apparently discovered that his Legos had been trashed upon returning to his family's home from his current residence in Jupiter. Both Mr. and Ms., Mr. Malise Sr. and Jr. were advised uh, that uh, they could pursue criminal charges if they wanted to. Over Legos. Over Legos. At some
5: point, somebody should have thought, hold on, we're talking about Legos here.
2: They were unable to determine who was the primary aggressor But
3: I think we've learned a very important lesson You do not mess with a man's Legos That's the best scene from this movie, by the way When Will Ferrell, who plays the dad Is trying to convince his kid that Legos are not for kids (laughs) Well, we bought it at the toy store And it says for ages 7 to 8 That's a suggestion They have to put that on there I know people that buy
2: Legos, never open them Save them for about five years and then sell them for big money. It's called retirement. It is retirement. And you don't mess with a man's Legos, apparently. It's just sad. Legos should bring you together.
3: I mean, I don't want to... They shouldn't cause you to disassemble as a family. No. No.
2: You, You should be able to fix this one block at a time. One locking block.
3: That family's house is not built out of bricks. That interlock.
2: What? What? What is it built out of? Yeah. Anger. Vengeance.
3: Straw. So that when the the wolves of turmoil and dissension <laughs> blow. Yeah. Over, it, over. Yeah.
2: And get the goat.
3: This is deep. Just keep going, guys. Okay. Here's another <laughs> one. Um,
2: Now heading to the air, emergency landing. This is so sad for this guy. Emergency landing after a worker accidentally was locked in a cargo hold on an airplane. The plane was forced to make an emergency landing in Portugal after a baggage handler was accidentally locked in the cargo hold. A Boeing 777 was about 160 miles into the journey from Porto to Angola in southern Africa when the ground crew noticed that he was missing. Hey, have you seen Jerry? <laughs> well, no, he was just loading that airplane that left. <laughs> yeah, I probably got a drink. Well, he didn't get a drink. He was stuck on the airplane, and uh, he's down there repo- reportedly loading a box of passengers' pets. When he fell, was knocked unconscious, and then they just shut the doors. Where's your buddy? Yeah, you sh- there should be a buddy system. In there that should situation. be a buddy system where you always load a plane with a buddy. It's, and what about the Marines, like, where you'd leave no one behind? These airlines, they left someone behind. Do
5: these luggage... Well, he left them behind. To,
3: sure. I don't know if they have it's that different. same code. Yeah, I think it's a different code. They do have uniforms, though. I think it's called No Luggage Left Behind.
2: Yeah, oh, that's that's true. See, the focus has been turned to the luggage, not the people that load the luggage. Mm. From now on, Buddy System... I think we should tether them together. The Angola Airlines plane hit an altitude of about 34,000 feet before its rapid descent to the Lisbon airport. The temperatures reached a negative 67 degrees, we believe, below. The guy, when he got off, was suffering hypothermia and is currently
3: recovering in the hospital. I think at that point I probably would have started opening up the luggage and just putting on as many layers of clothing as possible.
2: Oh, for sure.
3: Maybe he did, and he was still cold. <laughs> this is
2: a great sweater. I would
3: have grabbed the pet,
2: the dog or whatever it was, cuddled. <laughs> but they—that's the a good point too. Know what right I mean? there, yeah. I mean, well, the, the, yeah, probably was a boa constrictor something.
5: They may um, they may keep pets in a different area if he's going to have a problem where he almost died yeah, in the, the hole. Pet, the pets the pet probably aren't handle that. Yeah, they're probably in a different section.
2: It seems like if you wanted to, you'd probably be able to make enough ruckus that someone could hear you, wouldn't you? Well, he was unconscious.
3: You know what? Maybe, maybe he woke up, and he's lucky he, he could have just
2: died. I mean, yeah. that was crazy. You know
3: what he should have done? He should have got out his cell phone, and then a stewardess would have come down and told him to turn it off. Absolutely, they have those Samsung alarms now. That's a so. great. Yeah,
2: if only he had a Samsung Seven.
3: The Samsung Note would have saved
5: him. Oh, at least would have heated up yeah, the room. Yeah, caused some heat. He could get warm. <laughs>
2: I smell smoke coming <laughs> from Why is baggage? there a
5: bonfire in baggage? That's What's going crazy. on?
2: But he was okay. He's okay. Okay, good. He's in the hospital, and Angola Airlines did send him a basket with some peanuts and pretzels.
3: Winter. But uh, he is going to be docked in pay. Yeah. And uh, he did lose one of his travel vouchers because
2: that wasn't a pre-approved flight. Sorry. Check. Crazy stuff. Uh, we will take a break. Oh, actually, we've got a great uh, segment. We've been doing these reviews of of movies for Halloween, and we've got another one coming up. Uh, this is this is your top twelve. What are we calling it?
3: We're calling it. This is my pick for today's of uh, twelve days of Halloween movies. Excellent. <laughs> This is Jeff Simpson, here with my fourth pick of the 12 Days of Halloween movies. As promised, today's film is the second in the Love Thy Neighbor category. And it's part Rear Window and part The Goonies. Wait a minute. Am I reading yesterday's review? Nope. Okay, moving forward. The 1989 black comedy, The Burbs, tickles our funny bones, while also playing on our fears of the unknown, the odd, or the different. Tom Hanks plays Ray Peterson, a staycationer whose plans to enjoy a lazy week at home are thwarted by the strange goings-on of his nocturnal new neighbors, the
10: Klopex. Klopek. What is that, Slavic?
3: Now, we've all had Clopeks as neighbors, people you rarely see, if at all, and who, despite our best efforts to welcome them to the neighborhood with a plate of brownies, would rather be left alone. And the Klopex and the Burbs are no exception. Ray comes up with a
0: winning idea. Maybe we should go down and take a look in the basement. Maybe that was brother down there tapping on the ceiling a couple minutes ago. Who knows? So what
8: kind of doctor is this brother here, Ruth? Why don't you ask him yourself?
3: Ray's casual snooping quickly leads to an unhealthy obsession, as another neighbor convinces him the Klopex are members of a murderous cult. Do
9: you know what this is? It's a bone. It just happens to be a human thigh bone, Pray, There's no doubt anymore. Your neighbors are murdering people.
3: This film features Tom Hanks at his Tom Hanksiest, and the laughs are thanks to colorful paranoid characters who refuse to see anything but what they want to see. You're the one who started this whole thing to begin whoa, with.
0: Whoa, whoa, whoa! Who started the tuna neck? I Neck? you it? instigated. You know this who instigated this? Your
10: little boy watching people dig in the you
3: backyard. Even as each and every one of their seemingly ridiculous theories are refuted. This film speaks volumes about our fears, and hopes, of what goes on behind closed doors. And for some twisted reason, the two often coincide. So, instead of leaving sinister notes, accusing, and digging up your neighbor's basement in search of human bones, which are all things the protagonists of this film do, remember, we are commanded to love thy neighbor. I'll be back tomorrow with my next pick for the 12 Days of Halloween Movies. Until then... Go meet your neighbors and pray they're not psychos.
2: Well, there are some people who can uh, be notoriously reluctant to give up control. Have you ever met these people? Often uh, we may find ourselves hesitant to delegate tasks and decision-making to others, even when they would benefit from doing so, yet anyone who has worked in a large organization, will tell you that just as often uh, decisions can get passed from person to person, making it difficult for everyone to get the work done that they need to get done. So how do we encourage delegating when it's beneficial and reduce it when it's not? Mary Steffel joins us, a marketing professor. She is uh, here today to talk about some research she's been performing on uh decision making she's an assistant professor of marketing at the demore mckim school of business at northeastern university dr uh professor steffel thank you so much for being with us
0: thank you for having me on the show
2: what a uh, i think an interesting topic uh decision making and and delegating i mean we it seems like if you're in the position of leadership right if it's your title if it's your job we should just make decisions but it seems like a lot of people want to avoid it, and I guess that's what you've been studying, is why we are so uncomfortable with it.
0: Absolutely. Uh, our research finds that when people are in a position of making decisions that are going to affect other people rather than just themselves, they're more likely to delegate those decisions to someone else. Hmm.
2: And what? Uh, why is it? Why Why would they delegate it? Is it, is it just simply because... It's affecting them. I want them to make their own choice. Or am I being a nice guy or am I just not, not, I'm shirking my duty?
0: Well, we find that the primary reason why people tend to want to pass these decisions off to somebody else is that the burden of choosing for somebody else is actually greater than choosing for yourself. So you're more concerned about how responsible you might feel if the other person's unhappy or uh, upset about the outcome of the decision. And you're also, um, upset, at, worried about being blamed by that person as well. So it's both sort of how that person is going to feel toward you, uh, in terms of blame, but also how you're going to feel yourself, um, in terms of your own feelings of responsibility if you inflicted some kind of negative outcome onto somebody at
2: home. Mm-hmm. So we turn it over to them, um, and then that, that I guess, that seems like a, a kind of noble thing to do. Then they, they get to make the decision for themselves, but sometimes they also don't have the insight, the experience, the history they need to actually make the decision.
0: Absolutely, and then actually the research that we did, it's always a case in which you're not actually – handing off control of the decision to the party who's going to be affected, you're actually handing it off to a third party. So, if I'm a, a, a manager and I'm in charge of making a decision uh, that's going to affect other people in my organization, I might delegate that decision to uh, a, another manager, a, a coworker, or perhaps my boss, and have them make that decision instead. Ah,
2: huh. No, I've seen that. Oh, yeah. And... <laughs> In the end, it's so, so what got you interested in studying this, uh, Mary? What was it about this decision issue that you said, okay, we got to figure this out?
0: Well, I think a lot of times we think about decisions as something that happens inside our head. And I think that's a really simplistic view of how we make decisions every day. We don't just make decisions in our head, we make decisions in a social context. Our choices are affected by the, the people we're surrounded with, um, how those decisions are going to affect other people. And so it's something that's always fascinated me, whether we're talking about decisions in an organization, uh, like uh, um, how to allocate resources in an organization or um, uh, decisions that might affect some real-life outcomes, whether that be um, in a sales setting, so when a, a Customer might delegate a decision to a salesperson, but then also even in medical situations where you might delegate a decision to a doctor as a patient. Um, I, I'm very interested in these dynamics of what prompts us to want to put those decisions in someone else's hands.
2: Hmm. And it's uh, it really is I, boy every I, those brought up so many thoughts. Making a medical <laughs> decision, like I think of. Uh, you know, my father-in-law may make a different decision about his medical uh, choices than I would because he's a doctor and, um, oh, it's interesting, but to, to delegate some of these responsibilities to others puts a lot of pressure on other people.
0: It absolutely can, although in many cases these might be, you know, like, speaking of delegating decisions to your doctor... These might be decisions that doctors are perhaps well-versed in mm-hmm. um, uh, and make on a, a regular basis, whereas, you know, as a patient, this may be something that you encounter pretty infrequently and maybe don't have a lot of background or experience in making.
2: Is Are there certain people that are just better at taking control and making the decision? Are there certain, like, personality types?
0: Our research doesn't necessarily point out... Per- Uh, certain personality types that are more likely to delegate decisions, but we can say under what circumstances people are more likely to delegate decisions versus uh, make those decisions themselves. Mm. Um, You know, one factor that comes into play is uh, sort of the authority of the person that you might delegate the decision to. So um, I might feel very comfortable delegating the decision to a peer or Uh, somebody who is a supervisor of me, but I might not feel very comfortable delegating a decision to somebody that I supervise.
8: Interesting. Yeah. And
0: that's because delegating to someone I supervise, I don't really feel like I can be absolved of the responsibility of that decision because I still feel responsible for supervising that individual.
2: Yeah. So it's kind of, we will delegate up or lateral. We don't delegate down as much.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: That's interesting, too, I guess. But, yeah, I mean, I was thinking if I had to fire somebody, I'd rather have my boss do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> right? I mean, here you go. Here's, I'm afraid to do it or it's hard to do. But really, I guess part of it, too, is um, – so some of this you're saying is the authority might might matter, and it might make it easier for me to allow a, a bigger authority figure to do it.
0: Absolutely. So part of that is status, so whether the person – is a a superior superior or subordinate, another piece of that are maybe the the rules in your organization. If you delegate that decision, who's going to be officially held responsible for it? Are you still going to be accountable for the results of that decision, or is uh, whoever you delegate that decision to going to be officially held responsible?
1: Do do
2: you sense that are we more uncomfortable today than we maybe were 30, 40 years ago when it comes to delegating? Do we delegate more, And, and is it because of that fear of who's accountable?
0: That's a great question. Um, you know, I think certainly um, in, in many domains, um, litigation and, and concerns about, um, you know, having to pay a penalty for making a decision that might uh, have a cost for somebody yeah. else is something that I think people might be especially afraid of um, uh, today than maybe. A few decades ago, um, and that certainly can contribute to why people might prefer not to have that responsibility in their own hands. Mm.
2: It's it seems like is this something that did you notice that people get better at the more they delegate or the more they they actually don't delegate and make their decisions? Do they get better at making these decisions, um, or is that? you know does my boss when i keep asking him to fire somebody um does does my boss get better at that or or does he still hate that now <laughs> oh, by the way by the way mary now my entire team are shuddering they're afraid they're all like um, are you talking to the boss right
0: right well you know um we don't know a lot about you know who's going to be better at making those decisions than others and you know if you're constantly delegating decisions to your boss, rather than taking that ownership yourself, you know, there certainly might be a fear that you could be perceived as somebody who's not capable of handling the responsibility mm. that you've been given. And so that could certainly be a concern about repeatedly delegating to somebody else. At the same time, I think a lot of evidence from, the you know, research on how people work in, in companies and in organizations suggests that people often err on the other side um, by kind of taking on too many responsibilities for themselves and being afraid to actually allow others to help them execute those tasks and um, maybe delegate decisions to others when it really would be better off for them to do so.
2: Mm. is. And I know your your, uh, experience is in kind of the organizational development side of this, um, but does this apply at home, like my wife delegating the discipline to me? <laughs> or my wife delegating certain decision making functions to me that could have easily been made by her.
0: Absolutely. I, um, one of the things that I think we find really interesting about this topic is that I think traditionally it's been studied only in particular contexts, um, you know, maybe only in most commonly in medicine or in organizations, um, or maybe even in sales contracts where people might hire an interior decorator or financial mm. advisor to help them make decisions. But um, I think delegation is something that happens all the time. We yeah. delegate to our friends what movie we should go see, to our partner, you know, how we should discipline the kids, or um, what we should have for dinner. Uh, and and I think part of uh, what we find so interesting about this is to kind of illuminate how common this really is and, and, and how it's not just Specific to people who are in a particular role. Um, In fact, um, people are very willing to delegate to people like a friend um, or um, an acquaintance that doesn't have any more knowledge pertinent to the decision than they themselves do. So expertise doesn't seem to be critical to uh, why people might want to delegate a decision to somebody else versus for themselves. It's Certainly attractive, we'd rather somebody who knows what they're talking about, make a decision. Yeah. But um, when it's a, a decision for somebody else or between outcomes that we know, whoever is the recipient of that decision isn't going to like, we'd really rather put that decision in somebody else's hands.
2: Mm. Yeah. Good good learning. Good learning. Let's take a break. We're speaking with uh, Mary Steffel. She is a researcher and assistant professor of marketing at the DeMore McKim School of Business at Northeastern University and uh, is walking us through some of her research on why we are so uncomfortable making decisions for others, why we tend to delegate so much. Stick with us. A little learning for all of us. We'll be right back. Back, friends, learning today how to delegate and when to delegate and when not. When it's just a cop out, you're just copping out. There's just certain times you might need to step up and make the decisions, or at least start thinking about why you choose to delegate so many um, decisions, why you're so uncomfortable doing it. And so, we are honored uh, to have with us on the phone. Uh, a great professor and uh, expert in the subject. She's an assistant professor of marketing at DeMore, I think it's DeMore, DeMore McKim, we'll ask her, School of Business at Northeastern University. Mary Steffel's her name. Mary, thank you so much for being with us. Thank
0: you.
2: What is the name of the school? So I'm not destroying <laughs>
0: DeMore McKim School of Business. DeMore McKim, right.
2: beautiful, beautiful. And uh, we appreciate you, a PhD in marketing, and yet you're you're making a decision I mean, you've done research about decision-making. It makes sense, right? Because marketing is about getting people to make decisions.
0: Absolutely. Um, I think we're all, whether we're in marketing or public policy or or in our day-to-day lives, in the business of changing people's behavior. And so as a professor of marketing, that's that's very much uh, what I'm interested in, is uh, how to kind of help people make better decisions and understand how they prefer to make those decisions.
2: So sometimes we pass on the decision. I mean, I see that a lot. Um, My wife, I'll even pass it on to my wife. Like, do you want to, someone will come to my door. Do you want to buy this or that? And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to have my wife make that decision. Um, (laughs) And I I delegate it to her or she delegates it to me. And some of that, I guess, is just proper, you know, role playing, but or whatever we want to call it. But a lot of times we're just, we're dodging the responsibility we have a fear Absolutely. that and i don't want to i'll make decisions for myself but i don't want to obligate you or the company in a way that will come back and bite me mhm mhm okay
0: and um i think a lot of people sort of have the assumption that it's just about blame it's just about covering your behind yeah. making sure that people aren't going to point a finger at you and that's definitely a part of it we find that when people know that the people who are going to be affected by the decision are going to know that it was them who made that choice. They're especially likely to delegate in those situations. But what's interesting is that compared to when you're just making a decision for yourself, you're making a decision for somebody else, even if they're never going to know it was you, you're still actually more likely to delegate those decisions. Hmm. So it suggests that it's not just about blame. Yeah. But it's actually, there's a piece of that. It's just, I feel guilty. I feel bad if I make a decision that I think you're not going to like.
2: Ooh, it's like you're. Yeah, it's like you're taking. It, uh, I would feel bad. Well, I guess that's just my psychology. Um, I I actually like. I would rather the person that has to implement the decision make the decision.
0: And absolutely. And in our scenarios, we we didn't give people that option. Yeah. It was a situation yeah, where they the had to either make the decision for that other person or allow you know, some other individual to make that decision for the other person. But certainly there are many cases in which um, we might rather let that person make the decision for themselves, both because we don't want to be on the hook for that person's happiness and outcomes, but also because I think all of us, especially, um, you know, in today's day and age, really care about having the freedom to make decisions for ourselves. And I think we appreciate But others might feel that same
2: way. No, totally. Is there, so let's say we want to get better at this so we are more comfortable doing it. What are some things that we can do to to get in and make the decision and actually do it effectively, do it well?
0: Well, I think one thing to do is to perhaps focus on the decision itself and, um, Try to evaluate whether you feel like you can effectively discern what the best option is, and regardless of whether you're choosing between options that are all attractive or options that are all unattractive, um, you know that, that could help a little bit. I think one of the bigger things, though, is kind of thinking about um, you know if you can get some kind of reassurance that you're not going to necessarily be blamed for the outcome. That mm. can free people up to so feel comfortable making those decisions for other people. Preserving people's anonymity when they're making these kinds of decisions that might be controversial or have uh, something of a backlash to them um, can help, but won't completely eliminate the tendency to delegate. Um, each of those things could make somebody a little bit more confident, a little bit more willing to step forward in these yeah. decisions.
2: Well, I guess, too, just gathering input, right? Just mm-hmm. asking people's ideas, not delegating it to them, but going to the people you may delegate it to and just ask them what they are thinking. And then, and then you, I mean, the cool thing about it is if you're supposed to make the decision anyway, you're, you'll just be more informed. Plus you'll get some insight, some buy-in. And if you wanted to, you could still just make the decision the way they would do it.
0: Absolutely. And you mentioned something uh, there about, you know, ask the person what their preferences might be. Um, I've done some work on perspective taking, which is Mm. sort of the idea The, the common-sense notion that if you're making a decision for somebody else, you should just put yourself in their shoes. Imagine what life is like through their eyes. And actually, as it turns out, across a number of studies, we find that putting yourself in somebody else's shoes uh, doesn't help, and if anything, it, it makes you slightly worse. Does it really? <laughs> decisions on behalf of others. And, and what's much better is actually taking the time to have a conversation with somebody, ask them for what their preferences are, rather than... Um, perspective take, Mm. uh, we call it perspective getting, get their perspective out.
2: That's great advice. It's, um, I guess, because, so it doesn't work, perspective taking doesn't work because you're really not, you're still in your head trying to understand them. Perspective getting is them explaining what they need.
0: Exactly. And when you're trying to figure out what somebody else's preferences might be, you know, putting yourself in their shoes and, and and, and following that advice, it, it sounds like great advice, but the, the thing is, we probably have a lot in common with that person for whom we're choosing that could help us make a good decision on their behalf. Mm. And when we perspective take, what often happens is we kind of try to ignore all that commonality that we have and try to think about what makes that person distinct and, um Uh, you know, oftentimes we don't have as good of information about that other person as we have about ourselves. And so whatever we end up coming up with may not be very accurate
2: information. You know, oh, it's so true. We're so pathetic, Mary. Um, (laughs) Because what's funny about the whole thing is sometimes when I'm worried about having to make this decision, just going to find out more information, you realize it's not even a decision you need to make or you you realize it's a very easy decision. So you don't need to Mm -hmm. fret. You just the more data you have, I guess i mean in the end it it could be a lot easier on you i mean to a point yeah, i
0: mean i ironically it's a lot of the decisions for which you know the the options are probably equally attractive and and you probably be just about as well off in either scenario um, those are often the ones that we agonize over the most put off try to to kick over to somebody else and and have a difficult time kind of embracing and just um, making
2: the call. Yeah, no, that's good. That's really good. Is it, um, I, I guess another part of this, uh, some people might, th- there's this weird concept in communication theory where if I, if I show you that I'm trying to understand your point of view, you might get this idea that I'm going to go along with your point of view.
0: Oh, interesting.
2: So I, so I almost don't want to understand you anymore because I don't want to set the <laughs> expectation that I will do what you say or think. So, so how do we manage that? I guess that's just expectation management.
0: You know, setting clear expectations um, for, you know, what the criteria are that you use to make the decision, and. Um, can be a great way to kind of mitigate, you know, any concern that people might have say over the outcome because, you know, I think people have a, a tendency in hindsight to look at a decision and think, oh, they should have known better. Yeah. They should have known that this is going to be a crappy movie or, right. you know, that I wasn't going to like it. And and I think oftentimes if you can be explicit about kind of what you were thinking about when you made the decision, if that sounds pretty reasonable, people might be a little bit more willing to forgive you if you ended up, yeah. you know, not quite hitting the mark.
2: Well, like, if you're going out to a movie with your friends, you don't have to say, we are going to this movie. You could just say, so I heard from so-and-so at my office who recommended that one movie we went to. You can tell where you got your data. And he he said it was a really good one. But remember, this one's a little quirky, so it might not be as good. But anyway, just you can set the expectation. Oh,
8: sure.
2: Well,
0: and in that case, it almost sounds... But it comes across sounding I mean, like you're giving advice rather yeah. than yeah. making the decision on behalf right. of others. And in that case, I think oftentimes you end up sharing that responsibility with, with everybody else rather yeah. than taking it all on yourself.
2: Mm. I guess that's it, huh? Is, and it's Because we're social beings. We want to incorporate. We want to include everyone. We want it to be ideal, except we're also so afraid. It seems like a, not just it's it's not just fear. It's everything. It's authority. Who's the best decision maker? It's pleasing that one friend that you know never likes a movie, and she'll be
7: there. It's
0: absolutely um, my collaborator and I on this project. When we were uh, doing a postdoc together, all the the students and stuff we go out to lunch every day as a group, and we get to the bottom of the stairwell and 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 start thinking about where we should be walking (laughs) for lunch and that was a time where everybody started calling not it. You know, Nobody wanted to be the one to make the decision about where to go because nobody wanted to be responsible if there was somebody who really didn't like that restaurant or wasn't happy with what they got. And, <laughs> you know, That's certainly a great example of this kind of situation totally. where you know, I might be fine making a decision if it's just me going out to eat. But when I know other people's uh, happiness is on the line, I might be less likely to, to want to do so.
2: And, I mean, you see that with friends when you go out to dinner with, friends other couples or whatever you're like so where do you guys want no one wants to make the decision and I, <laughs> I I've driven around have you ever driven <laughs> around like for an hour trying to decide what you're going to do that's oh. pathetic
0: we'll spend about an hour looking through all the, the movie trailers to decide which <laughs> movie to watch on uh, Netflix
2: <laughs> Yeah, yeah. or you, you were going to go out to a movie but you've wasted so much time let's just stay in and maybe let's just have cereal and watch whatever <laughs> reruns are on Um,
0: Well, that's actually one of the perks of delegation. That's one of the upsides here in that um, I think oftentimes, you know, in situations like that, you could spend an hour trying to watch movie trailers to figure out what the perfect movie is going to be to watch and Mm. end up not watching anything else um, because you just can't make up your mind. Um, When you have the option to delegate that decision to somebody else, whether it be a family member or a salesperson or, or someone else that you trust, oftentimes, those kinds of decisions become much less overwhelming, and you're more likely to purchase something or yeah. watch some movie because yeah. you have the ability to say, look, I'm thinking about this one and this one. You tell me what to
2: do. There you go. Yeah, and uh, with couples, when I coach couples, um, if they get to an impasse like that, and and really yeah. no one has a super strong feeling, but they, have, they each have an idea, I always just say flip a coin. I mean, let mm-hmm. let let the divine make the decision by a coin flip. Not Don't spend hours wasting time discussing. If it's important, do. But if it's just what movie are we going to? Okay, you pick one. I'll pick one. We'll flip a coin to see which one we go to. Random. And
0: what's funny about that is that works really well for personal decisions because yeah. it's a way to mitigate regret. You don't have to kick yourself for making the decision because you left it up to state. You yeah. Know? Um but what's funny is that when it comes to making decisions for other people, that mm. doesn't that no. doesn't fly quite so well, right? You right. can't blame the coin. <laughs> yeah. They're gonna They're gonna point their finger at you, not at that. That's so, right. And if you're so, making a
2: company decision, or a, right?
0: Absolutely. So what we find in in this research is actually when people are making decisions for others versus themselves, they're more likely to delegate, but they're not more likely to take other kind of easy ways out, like flipping Inch- a coin yeah. or putting it off as
2: randomness. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because those things don't really absolve them of responsibility, and that's really what people are looking to do.
2: Isn't that interesting? Oh, man, so much to learn getting rid of our responsibility. Well, Mary, we appreciate your great work there, and uh, keep it up. We'd love to have you back to talk more about decision making down the road Dr. Mary Steffel's her name and you can find out more by going to her website uh, marysteffel.com let me make sure i got that right mary steffel s t e f f e l.com great resource uh, for all of us on our decision making we'll take a break come back wrap up hour number 2 of the program stick with us
5: Because life doesn't come with a handbook,
2: you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. What great advice! Uh, instead of taking the perspective of other, which is is a really big thing we teach in psychology about humans have the ability to try to understand how another is thinking, feeling, seeing the world. You could just so instead of perspective taking, you could go get perspective getting. You could just say, hey, I'm really trying to work through a decision I need to make on this issue. I wanted your insight. I wanted your input. It builds trust. It shows that you care, shows that you're willing to listen. It doesn't mean that you have to do what they say. I'm just looking for your input. What do you think about this? And just gather information, gather information. If you end up making the decision exactly as that person would, boom, you scored. If you don't, You still can understand how, where they were feeling and then go back, circle back and tell them why you made the decision. Um, Opening up communication, it's going to pay for you. It'll always give you at least the information. Most communication, remember, isn't about talking. It's about understanding. The more understanding we have, the better we can make decisions. It's hour number two. We'll be back, folks. Next hour, more fun, more insight to help you live longer. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side. Follow
0: Dr. Matt on Twitter
1: at DrMattShow. Call the show at
0: 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend.
1: Now on
5: BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio. Good
2: morning, friends. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. And today, holy cow, we're going to be talking about why you let your kids bully you if you do you let your kids run the show because if you do we've got some answers it's we we talk about it a lot kids that are just kind of in charge of the house not at our house
5: i think it happens
2: when the parents are outnumbered yeah
5: there's just too much to worry about. This this person's doing this, kids over here, kids on the chandelier. You just can't mm-hmm. stop it all.
2: It's different because, like, we have six children, and uh, one the first three children we parented very differently than the last three. Had you given up by the last three? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. It's just like, whatever. <laughs> Come home when you well,
5: want. Well, you saw the first three. They did yeah. things. It's I mean, not a big hungry, deal. Yeah. There's food. Yeah. Just put out a bowl, put some kibble in it. They're fine. <laughs>
2: It really is different. Yeah, I feel like I have more conversations with my last 3 hmm. younger. With my first 3 we played more games. Like all we would do is play every night. But now I seem to have more conversations. They they're probably more mature. Yahtzee? Yahtzee. p Pinochle. Pinochle. Bridge? Uh we do a lot of uh, uh MMA. Mixed martial
3: arts. Wow. Yeah. MLM just move the couches out of the way. Multi-level marketing. That's where we do that when they're in high school.
2: We're now, trying to build a downline. This
5: is a pyramid
3: scheme.
2: And <laughs> yes, son, if you can get three people and they can get three people, then you've got something. <laughs> Super good. Super good. Hey, happy, by the way, evaluate your life day. I don't care what you say this is it's my life. life. How many times have you heard this from your kids? Go oh, then pay rent.
5: I can't wait to have that conversation.
2: It's you only drop it about once a year, and you feel pretty dumb after. Do you? Yeah, I but think it'd
5: be kind of empowering. It's because you won the argument.
2: Yeah, but they have this crushed look. Like, ah, well, Dad, kids are resilient. Well, then you have this flood, this flood of ideas. Like, I hope I don't have to live with him someday.
5: Mm, right? They got to take care of me at the end
2: of my life. This could get ugly. Oh, Oof. Today's the day that you look at your life and you have a reckoning. What have you done with your life? If you feel good about it, keep moving forward. If not, let's make a change today. And go listen to Billy Joel. Mm. This reminds me of my childhood, this song. This is my sisters playing this all day, every day. It's cool.
3: Wasn't this also the theme song to Bosom Buddies? I was yes, going to say was. that. Yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. Which... Uh... Didn't that launch?
3: Those guys need to evaluate their lives. (laughs) I don't think they're around. I don't know. They got
2: a good apartment out of it. That's really the whole point. (laughs) (laughs) What did they do for it? Hey, we've got uh, so much to talk about. Of course, we will be uh, doing headlines in a minute, but we'll also go visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. We'll be talking about why parents are getting abused or bullied by their kids. And uh, give you some more headlines, information you may not even want to know about. Hmm. But some... You need to know about. And of course the hero story of the day. So much to cover. But first, to Sadie Nielsen and the headline. Sadie, what's up?
6: You can now fill out what the DeLorean Motor Company is calling a 2017 DeLorean pre-order interest application online in order to throw your name into the hat. Exact details on the car are still scarce, but a blog post from the company reveals that DMC is confident it can deliver. DMC isn't calling this a pre-order since it doesn't know yet how much the new car will cost. The blog post explains they're still figuring out where to source the engine and some other parts. These new cars will be low-volume recreations that look like the original but meet current emissions regulations. A federal judge in San Francisco on Tuesday said he was strongly inclined to approve a record-setting $10 billion proposed buyback and compensation offer from Volkswagen from 475,000 owners of polluting 2.0 liter diesel vehicles. U.S. District Judge Charles Breyer said he will issue a final decision in the matter stemming from Volkswagen's use of illegal software to defeat U.S. emissions testings by October 25th. A now-retired FBI agent and a State Department official involved in a discussion over the classification of information and one of former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's emails said Tuesday they had discussed mutual agency requests but had not linked the two as a bargain. The two men's accounts of a 2015 conversation were not identical and will not likely calm the Fuhrer over allegations of the State Department trying to arrange a quid pro quo to reduce the classification of an email from Clinton's private server in exchange for more FBI positions at the U.S. Embassy in Iraq. The issue was thrust into the presidential campaign Monday when the FBI published documents containing the allegation, which has been seized upon by Republican lawmakers and GOP presidential nominee Donald Trump. And finally... Yes? This probably is my favorite story of the day. What? What? Um, so you do do you know what an uh, emotional support animal is? Yes, I do. Okay. So usually they're like dogs. I think I've seen maybe one or two cats.
2: We had a chicken uh, a story turkey. A, we a, yeah a turkey.
6: No, no, no. So this is an emotional support duck. <laughs> that road with its owner on a recent flight proved to be a hit with fellow passengers. Mark Isig posted a series of t- series of photos to Twitter showing Daniel the duck riding in a passenger compartment from a flight to Charlotte to Asheville, North Carolina, with his owner Carla Fitzgerald. Really? Yes. Fitzgerald said she has PTSD from a 2013 accident involving a driver who was texting behind the wheel. She said her doctor prescribed an emotional support animal to help her remain calm, especially in panic attack situations. Yeah. yeah. Fitzgerald wasn't the only one to benefit from Daniel's presence on the pain. Isig um, tweeted, "His gentle quacking eases the sadness of leaving." Oh boy, he's actually really cute. Well,
5: sure he is. Um, Best part of the story? Yeah, a wearing a Captain
2: America diaper.
6: He was. That's what the
2: story well, you said. Have to wear oh, a diaper. Yeah, you, d- ducks are messy. Yes, they are. I had a duck. Uh, my father gave me a duck and my sister a duck for Christmas no for Easter oh wow Uh, when my parents were divorced and it about unhinged my was it dinner for Christmas no (laughs) oh I'm sorry but the funny thing ours were um, Bandit and Sundance Mm. okay yeah because one was shiny and sunny and one had a mask there you go Um, we came home one day after school and somebody had taken our ducks
6: oh how sad they were just gone way to kill the mood
2: about four years later at a wedding my mom's like You remember your ducks? I'm like, yeah. And she's like, they're in that pond right there. What? Because she took them to the place and left them there.
3: By the way, who footed the bill for that wedding? Uh, I don't know. Different wedding.
2: I don't know the people. I was 12. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks for bringing it up, though. I don't know. At least they didn't serve duck. Who footed the, the bill? The bill? They did serve duck. Well... Um, That's a crazy story. At what point does one person's support animal become another person's Barn, need for a support animal? Barnyard or something? If I'm yeah. sitting next know. to a lady who's got a duck and the duck keeps quacking, I'm going to need a support animal.
6: Yes. I had a roommate who had an emotional support dog, and it becomes the burden after a while because yeah. everyone has to take care of the dog. I mean, I get apartment. that they
2: need the support.
6: Yeah, yeah, Absolutely.
2: It just seems like because we joked about like what if my support animal is a donkey? Well, and I want to take it on the airplane. You got to buy an extra seat
6: or a whole row or the whole airplane. Excuse
2: me, can um, you switch places with my donkey? <laughs> oh, that's a crazy story. Good story. Good story. Um, okay, what other headlines do you have, Terry? That we have to something to watch make sure tonight at the to. debate. Yes, they've
5: changed some of the protocols. What? The new arrangement calls for the candidate's spouses to enter the hall closer to their seats rather than crossing the room and each other's paths. Remember last time the Trump campaign tried to put uh, Bill Clinton's accusers in their family possession as they come across, and uh, so they would have to shake hands with Bill Clinton. Well – So they're going to avoid that. The new arrangement calls for them to be – enter closer to their seats. That would avoid any potential for confrontations, giving the – opportunities that they've tried to go after before so that, that that'll be adjusted for tonight <laughs> so things aren't quite as awkward yeah there is a candy crush tv show
2: yes oh wow that
5: no one asked for coming to cbs as a live action reality tv show which is about as real as they can get it says i don't know why the franchise lend itself perfectly to the kind of larger than life physical game show that i love to produce and cbs is the perfect home for it says the guy whose new job is to produce the show Hmm. So it uh, doesn't really say what they're going to do, but uh, yeah, this is an incredibly visual, physical, and fun TV program coming up later in the future. <sighs> so what do you think? Candy Crush TV, is that good?
2: No. I didn't like the game. I mean, it's just
5: a game. And finally, the M&M Company. Yeah. I believe it's, is it Mars M&M? I don't know how that goes anymore. After years of development, M&M's now has the price. Pri-
1: Right. Trying
5: to sound things out here. Proprietary. There we go. Proprietary (laughs) technology Enter the soft and chewy category. Mars uh, executive says, thanks to our nation's hardest working candy scientists. Yes. Yes. M&Ms with caramel centers (laughs) will hit store shelves next May. Uh After years of trying, including the design of a new machine to to be able to produce these candy, Mars finally figured out how to successfully get caramel into an M&M, making it soft and chewy. Oh. The fourth category of M&M behind smooth, nutty, and
3: crispy. They really needed that. They've been yeah. They've been coming on hard times. And I think though that's probably my favorite category: soft and chewy. Isn't that how we
2: describe you? Uh huh. How do you want to be described, Matt, when you die? Soft and chewy.
3: <laughs> How'd they get that caramel inside you? Well, it's good to know they're finally breaking out of their shell. There you go. Yep. Right. It does not melt in your hands. No. Freaking
4: out.
2: Except
5: of the show. it does. If you hold on to it long enough, you get all that dye and stuff all over your hands.
2: But worth it. Yeah. Worth it. Except worth it.
5: The red dye is actually crushed bugs, but that's a different show. Go ahead. Okay.
2: Downer. <laughs> uh, man says a neighbor attacked him with a weed eater. Yeah. You will never believe what state this was in. Mm, Florida? Exactly. Oh, just a guess. Uh, police investigate all types of violent crimes, but rarely do those involve lawn equipment. Two neighbors. Had never met each other before, and then they had some heated words, and then it turned into a physical attack. He has 74 cuts on his legs, three on his back, and three bumps on his head. What the heck? This is why I don't mow my lung. Yeah. By the pictures, you'd think he'd gotten into a, fly, a fight with a wild animal. No, nope. wow. Just a weed Just eater. Just his neighbor with a weed eater. Damn. Now, every time I hear the word weed eater, I start to cringe, Lorick said. (laughs) Last Friday, while driving his truck, Lorick decided to stop to confront a neighbor, Jeffrey Koshin, who was doing yard work. Weeks before, he claims Koshin sped down their flooded street on 3rd Avenue, splashing him. His paperwork, his phone, his wallet basically told him, you're not a nice person in layman's terms for doing what he did to me. He swore at me and came right at me, uh, right to my face. That's where Lorick got in his truck. That's when Koshin swung the weed eater toward his face. Wow. Lurk wrestled Koshin to the ground, while St. Petersburg police uh, say another neighbor grabbed the weed eater. Hmm.
5: Man. Do you think it was an electric weed eater or gas-powered? Because the electric one, there'd be
2: a a limit to how far he could go, I just outrun the guy. Yeah. I would have just got in my truck and left.
4: <laughs> or just or, get out of here. Or wait
5: till your neighbor you want to confront isn't holding a yard tool yeah. of some kind that he could hit you with.
3: I always check my neighbors before I talk to them or give any feedback for yard tools. Is that a weapon? Yeah. Between the, the weed eater and the car, which one do you think is the more powerful weapon?
2: That's Couldn't he abuse his car? Yeah. you got to get in your car. Use your car. According to the officer who arrived on the scene, the man who was attacked with the weed eater, his legs were bleeding pretty severely. Wow. Yeah. A little intense. See tempers. Yeah. This is that's that's the problem. And a really important point, just because you have something to tell your neighbor doesn't mean you need to tell it. He did splash you. Let's say he did it intentionally, but it sure beats the weed eater to the legs thing. <laughs> Sometimes you you know.
5: Have you ever done that? Have you ever driven your car when there's huge puddles and oh, just splash? Yeah. yeah, we used to do it all good the time.
2: Good times. Those were good days.
5: <laughs> we weren't trying to splash people. We were sure just trying to weren't. make big splashes. Sure so. you weren't.
2: Okay. Hey, another guy, um, this is what you could do instead. If you happen to have a 2000 Chevy Blazer mm. and about 51,000 pennies. Okay. You could glue all the pennies to the blazer. Why? Why not? Okay, hey. <sighs> Although some of them fall off, I, mean, yeah, I the, mean, the replacement cost is just a penny. It's Pennies, pennies on the dollar. <laughs> pennies <laughs> on the blazer. Uh, this guy, I, I almost don't even want to give his name. Oh, oh, Larry Hall's his name. I don't know that I want to give it because he's least, fine. It's a lot of money. Yeah, I had to put them on one by one. Wow. He didn't build a machine. And then it took uh, seven weeks and six or seven hours a day. So he has free time. Took 80 tubes of silicon glue Which and three gallons of fiberglass boat glue. Just Found in the garage. Yeah.
5: Maybe that's what he was doing. He was cleaning out the garage and went, hey, here's an idea.
2: Who has 51,000 pennies?
3: Somebody who has uh, $5,100? Is that, was the math right on that one? I think that's right. That feels right to me. I don't know. We'll go check with our accounting department.
2: Yeah. Oh, it's right.
5: Um, yeah, that's a lot of money just to put on your car.
2: Well, and what happened? One accident, and you got like 20,000 pennies all over the yeah. sidewalk. And you still have 30,000 more on your car. This is a guy apparently that has a lot of time. Yeah. And money. But stick-to-itiveness, though. Totally, you know, seven totally. hours for how but, many days? I mean, I would have given up about 30,000 pennies. Right. But not this guy. Plus, that car's got to weigh a ton. hmm Right? Well, it's probably got to weigh four ton Because it's got 50,000 pennies on it. Right. All right. So, folks, again, if you were going to uh, evaluate your life day, we just gave you some examples that already tell you you're a winner. Yeah,
5: you're already ahead of the game. You're already... You're not being attacked with a weed no, eater, or no. attacking with a weed eater. Right, either. exactly. You're not gluing pennies to your right. car for weeks right. on
2: end. Right, life is good,
5: and you can you get to look forward to M and M's with a caramel center. Oh,
3: life is good. I'm totally going to buy those. I'm already. I'm on my way. And there's a Candy
2: Crush TV show on the, on the way. So mm. life is set. Plus, in just a minute, we'll be talking about why parents let their kids bully them. That's coming up next. BYU Sports Nation will be visiting us, finding out what's on their show. And the hero of the day, folks, stick with us. So much to talk about. And by the way, women, guess what, guys? Pay attention. They prefer their smartphone over you. Watch out. Watch out. We'll be talking about that, too, this hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world and helping remind you that you're part of that good. We'll be right back. When you think of a bully, you probably picture a big, towering person, twice your age, twice your height, pushing you over on the playground... But have you ever thought that that bully can take the shape of an adorable person one-third your size living right in your own home? More and more parents these days realize they're actually letting their own children bully them and fill their homes with screaming, kicking, and floods of tears. Today, Sean Grover, author of the book When Kids Call the Shots, How to Seize Control from Your Darling Bully and Enjoy Parenting Again. He joins us us from New York City to teach us how to reassert our roles as parents. Uh, Sean, thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate this
9: topic. Thank you so much, Matt, for having me on. Good to be with you. You, um,
2: you truly have. Uh, you've hit a nerve here. It seems like uh, you, as a as a counselor and a psychotherapist, you had a lot of parents coming into your office complaining that their kids are owning them, taking over. Um, is this? Are you seeing more and more of this today?
9: Boy, I thought it was a, a small population here in Manhattan, but it's everywhere I go. Parents are confessing and opening up. I was speaking up at a school uptown uh, last night and I asked how many parents uh, let you know experience this kind of thing and, and they shamefully raise their hands and look away I, it's just unbelievable I, did you ever do that to your parents?
2: <sighs> I don't think so mine I just I realize if I just treat them really nice and, and stay busy they won't bug me then I would just do everything <laughs> behind their backs <laughs> It was pretty smart psychology that's
9: good, or maybe a, a red boar light would be exactly. helpful if the kid comes at you.
2: Exactly, that's what you need. So when you look at this, Sean, and in your book you talk about it, what what's going on with this? Why are kids, why why are why are we giving them so much power? Why are they and how you know why are they taking over the role?
9: Well, I, I you know nature puts parents and kids on a collision course, right? You have to do things your kids don't want to do. So if you, if you look at, like, when they're uh, learning to walk, as soon as they learn to walk, what happens? They don't want to hold your hand. They want to yeah, run.
2: They've got to be free. As soon as
9: they feed themselves. You can't feed them anymore. So there's always this conflict. So that has not really changed. Kids sort of push back. We're calling it bully here, but it's really pushing back against this sense of being controlled. What's changed? Uh, what I've seen, I really feel it's a backlash against authoritarian parenting of the past. So, if you had a, a parent that was a real tyrant, you made a vow in your childhood that I am never going to be like that person. So, what happens? A lot of parents go so far the other direction where they're too accommodating, too generous, too giving, and they don't set any limits. Hmm. Uh, you see this in public often. It's it's hard to avert your eyes with yeah. some of these meltdowns.
2: So, really, it's it's kind of. It's just echoes from the past. I'm trying to not parent the way I was parented, but I might be. So if we had a lot of authoritarian parents uh, back in the day, then we now might be more likely to be kind of too loose, too free, wanting to be our kids' friends, not their parents.
9: That's certainly, you know, one of the cases. I think the other case would be the uh, if you grew up with an absent parent or neglectful parent, where you really didn't have a parenting model to internalize. So uh, now you're a parent, you have no access to how to do that, because there's this empty space. So what happens in those situations, children want leadership, they crave leadership. The parent doesn't provide it, and they start to defer parenting decisions to the child. What do you think? Do you want to do that? Uh, I don't know. What do you? Th- and they keep deferring until a child begins to feel more powerful than the parent. Hmm. Now you have this imbalance that just starts to turn the whole family upside down.
2: Oh, And you do see it. And, I mean, I guess part of this is, and you bring it up in your article that was on psychology today, uh, parents, their places are in the right heart. I mean, their heart heart (laughs) is in the right place. They just don't, it's almost like they don't know that they have, that they're part of this problem.
9: That's right. Well, the amazing thing about parents, I go out and do workshops all over the city and in the area, and I I ask, how many of your parents went to parenting workshops? How many of your parents stayed up late to come to a school and listen to someone talk about parenting? It just didn't happen. So on one hand, parenting used to be just a check on a list on your way to adulthood. Now I'm a parent, let's continue on but people are really starting to examine it and question their choices. And I think that that's really powerful.
2: Hmm. No, I do too. I mean, especially because the information is there uh, in your book and and in other places, it's, I guess, part of this is just being aware enough to realize I can do something different here. I don't just have to be bullied.
9: That's right. I mean, the the bullying or the mistreatment is just a symptom of an imbalance. So the way I like to think of it, when that thing happens, rather than uh, if you take the position like, I have to fix my kid, how do I fix my kid? You've got a long labyrinth to work your way through. But if you say something like, something's missing, something's missing here, what, am I, what could I do differently? It's amazing when the parenting model shifts, the change you see in the child is, uh, is much faster.
2: Is it—I mean, and I guess it would be hard to make sure you don't swing back to authoritarian or, That's you know, right. back to uh, neglectful again, <laughs> like just ignoring your child. You really want to swing to the middle.
9: That's right. You want to swing to the middle, and you have to realize that every family has its own culture. So uh, how you parent is going to be very unique to your personality and personality of your children. So it's very hard to create a one-size-fits-all in terms of parenting. We can have some basic guidelines, but we really want to honor and question what kind of culture do you want to have in your family? What's the philosophy drive in your family? That's much easier to intervene at that level Mm. than, again, trying to come down on the children.
2: And and the kids need this too, right? This isn't just for you to parent better. I mean, the kids want you to not – they don't want to be – abusive. They don't want to be mean. They don't want to take advantage oh, of you. They, they want you to be yeah. healthy.
9: Absolutely. They, if a child abuses their parents, their self-esteem is going to plummet. No child wants a parent they can kick around. They internalize their parent. So if the parent doesn't have backbone, they become more and more aggressive toward the parent. Um, so they will actually push until a limit is set. You know, I was running an adolescent group once, And uh, there was a young man in the group who didn't have any limits. He was out all night. He was only 15, Mm. all over the city. And one week he didn't come, and uh, all the other boys, teenagers, were saying, oh, what a life this kid has. I wish I had that. So I said to them, how about I talk to your parents and get you his life? I get them to agree to all those freedoms for you. And they became outraged. My parents would never do that, and we argued about it. And I said, why not? And one quiet girl raised her hand and said, because my parents love me. Mm. So the idea that limits are not punishment. These are necessary psychological requirements. Kids can't control themselves naturally. They need to be a little bit afraid of their parents. So they have a mindful pause before they're going to do something destructive. If they don't have those limits and parents don't step up, then they're going to be much more impulsive, much more destructive, and carry that kind of behavior into their adult relationship. Mm. So this has repercussions far beyond adolescence or childhood.
2: And, and yeah, and, and these are also fairly typical behavioral, you know, kind of developmental stages, right? I mean, kids need—they're they're going to rebel at certain stages. They're going to push the limits at certain stages. They're going to want to not have you controlling them at certain stages.
9: That's right. And you want a little defiance. You want your child to be a little defiant. This way they're asserting themselves, they're defining themselves. Uh, If they're too compliant and too accommodating to you, you're more likely going to see a child that lacks self-confidence. So they may be, uh, you may feel great about having such an agreeable child, but out in the world they may really struggle to have a voice.
2: Mm. Boy, when they need it most, huh?
9: Absolutely, especially in adolescence.
2: That's a big deal. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Sean Grover. About uh, his book, "When Kids Call the Shots: How to Seize Control from Your Darling Bully and Enjoy Parenting Again." Great insights on how to uh, how to create a relationship of, I guess, more respect, but also what the kids need. Create a true blue parenting relationship where uh, all the benefits, the fruits, can come from that. We'll continue the discussion after the break. More with Sean Grover. Just a minute. to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, as we talk about parenting, do you you feel like you're being bullied by your kids? Do you feel like they are calling the shots? If so, uh, you might want to look at yourself a bit and just figure out what's going on. Joining us is Sean Grover. He is the author of the book, When Kids Call the Shots, How to Seize Control from Your Darling, Bully and Enjoy Parenting Again. He joins us from New York City where he teaches classes, parenting classes, and he helps people, I guess, re- regain the reins of uh, the parent-child relationship. Is that what you do, Sean?
9: Absolutely. And I think as they get older, I'm getting more and more impatient with parents that are, are resistant to it. They'll often, uh, they, they kind of be sound, start to sound very whiny to me, like, yeah. I don't know what to do. Or, and I'll say, well, <laughs> who's paying for the cell phone? Who's paying for all these gadgets? What, what, they, the kids are really... It goes beyond spoiling, because spoiling, you basically have a kid that's annoying or obnoxious, but this kind of situation, you have a kid who's overly aggressive, and that's going to infect all his relationships.
2: Well, and yeah, that's not going to go well in life. That, oh, no. That will that will come back to haunt them, and then it will eventually come back to haunt you.
9: Absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny. I've been doing this a long time, and uh, I had a—I see this often, kids will— uh, come back and visit me as adults. And a young man came in, who's early 20s, and he brought his girlfriend because they're having problems. I sat in my chair, shocked that he was talking to her and yelling at her the way I heard him 15 years ago mm. yell at his mother. So nothing was done at that point. And so here we are as an adult. This is how you treat women.
2: Wow. Handed down. So what do we do? How do we... Um, you know, seize control again from the darling bully?
9: All right. Well, first, uh, we're going to look at bullying as an imbalance, right? So I I usually go through a five-point checklist, which is uh, the first point would be tension outlets. Does a child have enough physical activities? And a cardio workout three times a week, 30 minutes, will cut anxiety and depression by 80% Hmm. in kids. So if that kid's anxious or uptight, He's holding all that tension in his body. He's going to be more impatient, less flexible, and more aggressive. So first thing, are they moving? Uh, Second thing would be, is there enough structure in the household? What's family communication like? Do they have family meetings? Third thing we want to look at is models and mentors. That's the express lane to getting a kid on track. I've seen kids go from being drug dealers to ballet dancers because a mentor came into their life. Hmm. Fourth thing we want to look at is then learning diagnostics. A lot of these disruptive behaviors can be traced back to under the radar, learning disabilities like processing, oratory functioning, etc. Once we check all of those, those lists off, then we're going to take a look at the parent, take a look at their marriage. I can't tell you how many parents kids have told me the secrets they've shared mm. uh, about the other parent. Yeah. So uh, what a nightmare. What a uh. nightmare.
2: So it's interesting. So the the parents' marriage is a gauge of of what the kids going through.
9: Yeah, and you know, they come to therapy because they they're they want the kid fixed instead of like dropping the car off. Right. And they they're in for a big surprise. Last year I had this young man, I said, "You know, if you want to have a meeting with your parents, we can always do that and I'll I'll help you, you know, express things that you're worried about." And he got very excited. And uh, parents came in, sat on the couch opposite him, and they said, okay, we'd like to talk about him doing his homework. And this young man, barely 17 years old, said, we're not talking about that. We're talking about you guys. I know you hate each other. Wow. Oh, my God. I almost felt I didn't even see that coming. But there was so much tension in that house, psychic tension that sort of erupts in children that they, they can't tolerate it. And so they become super aggressive. So we really want to look, again, we have this symptom, where could it be generating from? Often, Hmm. it's a disagreement between the parents or a tension between our two different parenting styles. So we have to do a, a full overhaul if we're going to be effective.
2: But look what you just did. I mean, right there, you listed about, I don't know, eight things that the list you can run them through. But each one of those opens up an entire new category of answers, of solutions, of problems that, that need to be evaluated. And yet parents sit there and say, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I mean, all they need, I guess, is the, is kind of the checklist. Let's, let's just start doing it as a professional would do it. I mean, are these in the book then?
9: Um, yeah, the, the first half of the book is all worksheets for parents. And if you had, as we spoke of earlier, you know, a, a really aggressive or punishing parent, there's trauma there. Yeah. For so often, when uh, a parent finds themselves on the receiving end of that same kind of aggression from their own child, they're no longer thinking like an adult. They're back in the child zone. Uh, uh, and you can see a change in them, and I'll wonder, gosh, this person's a high-powered lawyer. Gee, they've got a thriving business. But somehow, when their child comes at them, they They're revert back anymore. Yeah. yeah, they revert back to the five-year-old. That's right. And then the kid starts to actually parent the parent. Oh. Complete and utter disaster. Well, and
2: then has to hear the stories of what's going wrong with their parents because, uh, you know, these parents are tattling on each other. I mean, it gets – the <laughs> systems get – it gets convoluted. I mean, and then you can see why this, this gets handed down generation to generation.
9: That's right. You know, I was coming through an airport, and uh, I saw this mother. I, I'm assuming she was a single mom, dragging about four or five suitcases, a <laughs> backpack, two two carry-ons, and two rolling suitcases, huffing and puffing. And who was walking behind her, carrying nothing? Uh. And then the mother was lost. These things happen in public. I nearly make a scene. My wife has to, you know, <laughs> relax, it, relax. <laughs> And then the, the, the daughter says the mother says, oh, I don't know what gate we're at. And the daughter, who's about 13, her sister's about 12 or uh, 10, and she turns around and says, wouldn't it be nice to have a real parent? Uh. And then the mother bursts out crying, like, that's going to help. <laughs> and I'm standing there with my wife is now pinning me to the floor. Yeah, you want to uh, go tear you know, into this. I want to tear into that. it just It's uh. so... Uh, I think I used to be uh, a little gentler when I was younger, but as I get older...
2: Well, you see I it faster, too. It. <laughs> you, you, that's what I love about uh, people that are good at what they do is... So if, if, if parents don't have the answers, there's answers. Go find the help. Get this book, for example, Sean. But, but there's, there's people that can see through this a lot faster than they can. Get help. That's right.
9: Well, yeah, parenting... This goes for me, too. You don't get a pass because you're a therapist. No. Uh, I went through, the book actually was born of my own struggles because I felt the parenting books I read sometimes actually made me feel worse Yeah. Uh, because I was like, who are these kids? How do people talk that way? That doesn't sound, I couldn't get the script out of my mouth, but I I will tell you, I did have a big pushback moment recently with my 16 year old where she really stood up to me because I was a little snarky and I Hmm. said something rude. She put me in my place and I got to tell you I was so proud of her. That's uh... I could never would have had the the guts to do that with my own parents.
2: But how, and, and but again she wasn't there she's not a bully she's being mature.
9: She's being mature. So we, we established a lot of no-fly zones. There's no cursing, there's no name-calling. We're going we all get frustrated with each other, we're going this is how it works in our family. So that's good. That's why your family it's going to be different from your neighbor's family. You don't want to get involved in that. That's you are going to great. figure out, you know, consciously, what kind of family you want to have here. How, what kind of leadership you want to provide. Most parents are so busy either being burned out by the requirements of parenting or exhausted and giving in all the time. They don't really even have that thought. Hey, I'm leading my own tribe. Mm. How, can I, how can I do this better?
2: So that true. That
9: is the express link.
2: So true. Love that advice, Sean. Great quote. Uh, when are you going to stop swatting at the flies and go and patch the screen? Sometimes we're too busy swatting. We're not doing enough patching. Sean Grover's his name. Go check out his book, When Kids Call the Shots, How to Seize Control from Your Darling Bully and Enjoy Parenting Again. Powerful stuff. Our families need it, folks. This country needs it. We need healthier, happier families. They are. The, they are the... Institution that matters most on this earth. We'll take a break. We'll come back. Visit our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's up on their show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Now, we're going to shoot it down to our good buddies at uh, BYU Sports Nation today. It's Spencer and uh, Jason, but we're playing a fight song. We were trying to see if you guys know what song this is.
1: Boise State.
2: How did you know that?
1: Well, I just kind of assumed that since that's who BYU plays tomorrow, you may go that direction. Oh, is that Process who they're playing? elimination, match.
2: That's who they're playing, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, turn that off. We can't have that on BYU
1: radio. <sighs>
7: I just
2: made my stomach a little.
7: <laughs> Feeling sick now? Yeah. Oh, man.
2: Yeah, I don't like the horse meat.
7: Oh, you know who does? <laughs> Ului Lapuaho. <laughs> you he said that yesterday. Horse meat. <laughs> he,
2: like, he likes the horse meat.
7: Yes, it is. Seriously. Oh, it that is. player me. profile on BYUcougars.com it says his favorite food is horse meat. Holy cow.
2: I don't know if you can say that.
7: Where do you,
1: where do you get
7: that? Yeah, Louis is an easy target for Boise State fans for a few reasons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: but, wait, oh, never mind. <laughs> hey, but, hey, here's a question, you two. Does a Thursday night game throw teams off? It's got to be hard to plan, and you got to get ahead of the game.
7: The short week is always tough, especially on the team that has to travel. Mm. BYU is the traveling team, albeit it's only an hour flight, more like 50 minutes, but... It's still road game, and you're out of your comfort zone, and it's early in the week, and so everything just gets compacted into like preparation and all that stuff. So, I mean, any advantage you can you can have as the home team because you don't have to travel and and you can sleep in your own beds. Like the, Boise State, there's a reason they're undefeated on Thursday nights. Well, and, and the other part is, I mean, athletes. I mean, we all know this.
1: The, the, most people are creatures of habit, but athletes, especially and when you look at what a typical work week is like for college football athletes you know monday is a specific thing tuesday so you have all the all these days that you're used to doing certain things leading up to a game on saturday and now everything is compacted and so i mean just being a creature of habit getting you out of that like like mm. spencer said that comfort zone a little bit it it does mess with things oh
2: yeah plus just your diet
1: yes you know?
7: <laughs> that too <laughs> That
1: too. I mean, you're you, going up to Boise. You're going to be eating a lot of
7: potatoes, right, the carbs. You're right. going to be bloated.
1: Yeah, bloated.
7: Some I mean, horse meat. I mean, yeah,
2: <laughs> it's, it's all get weird. It's so ugly. Hey, okay. So I was reading a study, and I thought about you both. Um, here's the study. It's a, it's about women prefer their smartphones over their partners. And um, I don't know. I thought about you guys, but um, yeah, thanks for that. But apparently, women. Would rather spend time on their phone than with their partner. Women spend 12 hours more a week checking emails, sending text, surfing social media than they do with their loved ones.
7: Well, they can be heard on social media at all times. Exactly.
2: They, they have a listening ear. If they, have a, if they have a Samsung Note 7, it even heats up. It warms up. It something... blows
7: up and is currently prohibited <laughs> yeah. from being taken on any flight in the yeah. continental United States.
2: But not that it's not cozy at times. You know.
7: it, it is interesting. Honestly, it makes me sad, Matt. It you, really
2: does. But you and your misses, you have actually had time away from your phones before, and you, uh, it brought your marriage closer
7: together. We went on a trip to Miami, our phones got stolen poolside, mm-hmm. and my wallet, and in that moment you think, oh no. I'm dead. i like, my, my have to is talk over. to my wife. I, I didn't I, realize your wife's phone got stolen as well. My wallet, my phone, and her phone. I did not know that yeah. part of the story. Mm. There Regardless, you were. Regardless, like, it was, you're right, it was a good thing. It's yeah. like, hey, we just are going to focus on each other, and we're going to talk the entire time at dinner. <laughs> well,
2: and- didn't you... I think you told me you sat poolside holding each other, crying for about two hours.
7: That was not meant for air. That had nothing oh, to do with the
2: cell phone. Oh, was that off taken. air? I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh man, I'm so sorry.
7: Isn't it funny I,
1: though? When like because we're so connected to our our devices that when we don't have it initially, there's that like shock to the system. Yeah. But the longer it goes, the better you feel. Yeah, this is great. Like seriously, isn't that funny how that happens? Right.
2: Totally. And then and then all of a sudden you're talking again. You remember that she you make laughs. You eye contact. Uh-huh. Next thing you know, you're hugging.
7: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and all the, that stuff. There's the <laughs> See how yeah, we save that? I, I see I see what you did there. <laughs>
2: That's the power of the pregnant pause. <laughs> it's a broadcasting trick we did. Hey, um Let's change the subject. Okay. Uh, What are you guys going to talk about on your show?
7: Uh, First of all, sports. It's called BYU Sports Nation. Sports Nation. And why? Why, Matt? Why the Big 12? Okay, never mind. This is potentially BYU's biggest game in independence. What? Yeah. Really? Because you think, Boise State, what? Yeah, they're good, but huh? Okay. I'm telling you, BYU is trying to do something they have not done in now almost six seasons of independence Holy they cow. take on Boise State. And what would this win really mean to the program this year? Oh, this game is pressure. loaded, Matt. Locked it is and loaded. loaded with okay. headlines and loaded with opportunity for BYU to do something they've never done mm. in more than one way.
2: Okay. Oh, you're, this is going to be a good show.
7: That's what you call quite the tease. I'm that... going to get more flack for what I'm going to say on the show today. <gasps> but you know what? I took a, I got hammered in August, in the summer, when I said what I said about Boise State. And I said, this is going to be the toughest game that BYU plays all year. You People were like, oh, what about Michigan State or Utah, <laughs> UCLA? You're an idiot, Spencer. <laughs> well, here we are. And, and that was BYU just your mother. <laughs> is going to play. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Shout out to Christine. Uh <laughs> and, and this is this is the thing. BYU is now going to play the first ranked opponent, meaning when they were ranked when they played. That yeah. that happens tomorrow night. <sighs> West Virginia's now ranked. Yeah they weren't ranked when they played BYU. Come Neither was Utah. Right. Boise State's ranked. They're top fifteen team. Ah, uh, It's a big uh, one. Or and it's, it's a biggin.
1: It's, mm. it's on Blue Turf. Yeah, the Blue Turf I hear it gives you... It's it's gimmicky, but you know what? It works. It's theirs. It's theirs. They play very well on the blue turf. I think we should get, like,
2: leopard skin turf. Like, painted
1: that way. What about cougar skin turf?
7: Cougar turf. No,
1: t- it's tail Like oh. like it Like, it, the, the turf would essentially just look like a one gigantic cougar tail. <laughs> 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 Nothing wrong with that. Just a, yeah, you just could like, have, like a huge rug. You could, you could have it, like, smell <laughs> like maple. <gasps> mm. Mm. Like okay. a scratch-and-sniff turf.
2: Yeah. Oh, that sounds good. Just saying. That sounds pretty gross, actually. <laughs> uh, hey, did, could you guys smell that turf? That turf smells so good. Yeah. Something's Speaking right of there.
1: smells. Yeah. Smells of sweet mm. dough. I was in an April. elevator uh, this morning, and it it's not in this building. Okay. Uh, it smelled like somebody had uh, stayed in that uh, elevator Over. and had made uh, some burnt scrambled eggs. <gasps> and now I have got that smell just – it's stuck in my nose. Did you yeah, find my lunch? That was my lunch. Jason, please. <laughs> good luck with that on the show, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. <laughs> we'll leave it, We'll leave you now. <laughs> I've found some burnt scrambled eggs. Yum.
2: <laughs> that sounds
7: horrible. we got you covered from horse meat to burnt scrambled eggs.
2: <laughs> Have a good dinner. Take care, guys. Have a great show. Thanks, Matt. Knock them dead. Oh, yeah. Isn't that funny how a smell can just linger in your system? You know, those early morning, I don't know, church meetings when somebody shows up and he's like the only one that obviously had the bacon breakfast. You're like, who got up to kick you bacon at seven in the morning? Oh my whole family! We always get up on Sunday or that early. Right. Hmm. Right. Hey, um, little uh, update. Bill Belichick is frustrated with the new technology on the on the football field. Apparently, Microsoft has created done a contract with the NFL. They're handing out these Surface tablets, and now all of the. Uh, all of the athletes, and they're using these tablets on the sideline. They're using – they're running their plays through them. They're doing all these things. Plus they take pictures of every, you know, every possession so they can show the quarterback and the quarterback can thumb through the pictures. Anyway, Bill Belichick the other day threw his, uh, his tablet on the ground. He was frustrated. He went off for five minutes about how we can't stand the thing.
4: He just, come on, man. Come on.
2: He just wants to go back to the good old days where you just use paper. So, you know, you can't teach everybody. Technology doesn't work for everybody. But these younger bucks, they might like it. Come on, Bill.
8: Yes, I
2: love technology. Great song. As you know, we like to wrap up the show talking about a hero. And man, have we got a cool one for you today. Mom packs two lunches for her son. And you won't believe why. A mom in Albuquerque, New Mexico, was asked by her son to pack two lunches for school. I'm telling you this, it's not for praise or anything, explain the mom, Josette Duran. I'm telling you because it's pretty intense. Josette Duran's emotional Facebook live video is getting a lot of attention. She's been packing her son's lunch and an extra one since the beginning of the school year because her son asked her to. He said, no, mom, it's for this little boy at school and he sits by himself and all he eats is a fruit cup said Duran. The school principal called Duran into the office because that little boy's mom found out that Duran had been feeding her son. She says, "'Um, I know this isn't much, "'but I just got a job, "'and I know that you've been feeding my son,' Duran said. Duran said she couldn't accept the single mother's money. The girls' volleyball team that Duran coaches also raised more than $400 to pay her back, but she took the money straight to the cafeteria. "'We paid up all the past due accounts "'for all of the kids that needed lunch, right?' So now, uh, no one in the school owes any lunch money to anybody, and everybody can eat, explained Duran. Duran found uh, that the uh, little boy's mom lost her job, couldn't afford the lunches, so she just stepped in. And by the way, motivated by your son. Isn't it cool? A, a child that cares that talks to a mom that cares, bada boom, bada bing, the next thing you know, you got a, you got life's changed. That's what we want to do on this show is help you change your lives and those around you. We'll be back again tomorrow to give you more ideas, more insight to see the good in the world. Until then, let's take care of each other and make it a great one. We'll talk tomorrow.